Welcome into another episode of the Double Dupe Sports Podcast, episode 14 of season 5, recording here on a Wednesday night in College Station, Texas. I am your host, Tyler Dupnik, pleased to be joined once again and as always by my co-host and twin brother, Austin Dupnik. Austin, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing wonderful, Tyler. I'm happy to be here with you once again on another episode of the Double Dupe Sports Podcast. Happy to talk about all the content that we have on the episode today, and how are you doing this afternoon? I'm um, doing pretty good. Obviously, we're both a little upset because our Aggies were just eliminated from uh, College World Series after a great run. We'll talk about that at the end a little bit and, and for sure shout those guys out and talk about that, like I said, as we kind of wrap up in the Double Dupe segment. We have a lot of content to cover before we get there. And before we get started with the content of this episode, thanks for listening as always. Uh, you can subscribe, rate, and review if you haven't already on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you guys listen to our podcast. Certainly appreciate if you would do that if you haven't already. And you can also follow us on social media. You can follow me, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at tdupe 25 And as always, you can follow me on social media on Twitter at Doopy underscore Austin and on Instagram at AU underscore Doopy 10. So if you guys don't follow me on those handles, if you don't follow Tyler on his handles yet, please do that because as we know, uh, well, unless you're a new listener, but if you're a, if you're a new listener, if you don't know, we always post any podcast-related information. You know, that's where we always post when the podcast is out there and available to be listened to. And so just simply, if you don't follow us on those handles yet, uh, please do that if you want to keep up with the podcast outside of the recordings. Absolutely. All right, now we'll go ahead and start with the NBA. And uh, this should be the last time. Well, actually, we'll probably start with the NBA next week, but uh, maybe the penultimate time we start with the NBA. And one of the last times we'll talk about the NBA on this podcast, because, of course, the NBA Finals have finally concluded. Last Thursday, we saw the Golden State Warriors take care of business against Boston with a 103-90 victory to clinch their fourth title in the last eight seasons. Uh, Joining a pretty exclusive company, but before we kind of dive into that a little bit, I'll let you talk about the game a little bit from Game 6. Yeah, certainly an interesting game here, to say the least. Uh, we we saw we knew that you know Boston was down three to two in the series, but they were hosting this game at the TD Garden, and they certainly had an opportunity to win it and force a game seven. And of course, that's what they were going to have to do as they were facing elimination. And you know they came out pretty good for the most part. I think they you know throughout the maybe the first half of the first quarter or the first six to nine minutes played well for the most part. They were winning at one point twenty two to sixteen. Uh, but a big story in this game was when the Warriors went on a huge twenty one to zero run. Uh, in the first quarter, uh, down the stretch in the first quarter into the second quarter, uh, the Warriors were down 22 to 16. And the next thing you know, they were winning 37 to 22. And I know you mentioned beforehand, we were talking about the game. They never looked back after that. The Warriors just really found a way to right the ship there early on after maybe getting off to a bit of a sluggish start. Uh, they ended up outscoring the Celtics by five points in the first quarter and then by 10 points in the second quarter to take a 15 point lead into the break. And then in the third quarter, the Celtics came back a little bit, made it a 10 point game going into the fourth quarter quarter but then down the stretch they were not able to do enough and they were not able to overcome that deficit as the Warriors outscored them by three points in the fourth quarter and ultimately won the game by 13 points uh, it was a phenomenal game uh, overall and it was a terrific performance once again by Stephen Curry who ended up being named finals MVP for the first time in his career after the conclusion of the game and for good reason he had a terrific series for the most part outside of a, a outside of a, a, a game five where he really struggled uh, but in this game he was right back on track as he was 12 for 12 21 from the field in this game and 6 for 11 from behind the arc with 34 points, 7 rebounds, and 7 assists. And so he was just dynamite once again for Golden State. It was really terrific in this game. Uh, in addition to him being phenomenal, we also saw Draymond Green have a fantastic game with 12 points, 12 rebounds, and 8 assists. So nearly a triple-double for Green, who really picked it up down the stretch in this series and found a way to get back on track after he was struggling early on in the series. 
Andrew Wiggins, who we know has been was so good throughout the course of the series, also had 18 points, six rebounds, and five assists. So he was really impactful uh, for the Warriors in this game. And then Clay Thompson struggled in this game from the field. You know, he's only five for 20 from the field, but he did have 12 points. And then off the bench, we saw Jordan Poole have 15 points. He was five for 12 from the field. So overall, a pretty balanced approach still uh, with Curry leading the way and having you know the 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 most important you know output for them and leading them in scoring with 34 points like I said so overall it's a great performance by the Warriors they found a way to make it happen once again yeah you know you really can't say enough about this group I mean like you said uh, well I guess I can talk about Boston first before we kind of touch on the whole idea of it but uh, yeah you know obviously they came up short um, losing by 13 but they came up short of scoring by they, they failed to score 100 points again which I think they lost every game in this series that they failed to score 100 or more points you can't say enough about this Golden State defense one of the best in the league all year long that's why this team has won four titles in eight years it's because they've always been they've always done a nice job of having a focus defensively because you can't win titles unless you're good on both sides of the court and obviously we know what they can do offensively running all over the place uh, you know being a matchup nightmare and finding different ways to score and being just really tough to defend but also you know being defense you know defensively they're one of the best teams in the NBA they were this year they were in this series and they really did a great job of stifling the Celtics offense most notably Jason Tatum they made it really tough on him in this series they made it tough on him in this game he was six for 18 from the field only had 13 points didn't really rebound the basketball as well in this game either with only three rebounds Jalen Brown, though, he found a great rhythm in this game. He was the best offensive weapon for the Celtics. He had 34 points, uh, 12 for 23 from the field, was 5 for 11 from three-point land. So he did a great job in this game. And Al Horford did a great job as well. He was uh, 6 for 8 from the field, made four of his uh, five three-point attempts and had 19 points going on 14 rebounds. So he had a double-double. So Al Horford, who was so great for the Celtics this season, especially in the postseason, and um, you know came up short of a title when he finally got to that stage. But he was pretty darn good in this game. Robert Williams also was in double figures with 10 points. But that was pretty much those were the only four players in double figures. Marcus Smart didn't really shoot at that wall, although he did contribute, you know, nine points, six rebounds, nine assists, did some good things. But they weren't able to get enough uh, contributions from uh, Grant Williams, hardly even, you know, contributed at all in this game. He wasn't very aggressive, at least maybe he didn't get, any, he didn't get very many looks, only shot uh, two field goal attempts and finished with three points. So they had no real contributions off the bench, only five points from, from the bench in this game, which is not surprising because they didn't use a lot of guys necessarily off the bench. The Celtics were pretty stuck in their ways on who they knew with the rotation was and it worked for them for a long time but uh, they couldn't get enough from their starters in this game their defense wasn't able to do enough and you know, both teams shot it kind of similarly. You know, the, the Celtics shot 42% from the field, just under 40% from three-point range, and the Warriors were 41%. Actually, surprisingly, this is crazy. They were 41.3% from both the field and three-point range. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. But certainly, it was a good game to some extent. But again, it just felt like the Warriors more times than not were in control. And when they went on that 21-0 run, and then, uh, you know, from there, kind of, it would net, like I said, never looked back. So really great stuff from the Warriors. You know, this is a team that I think this one meant more to them maybe than some of the ones they've won in the past. Of course, winning in 2000. 2015 the first time they won in 2017 and 2018 so they won three out of four years there obviously Kevin Durant was a big part of those latter two um, and obviously he's not here anymore so I think it but, but it's more about because this team was the worst team in the NBA a couple of years ago they literally had the worst record in the NBA in 2020 when you know Clay Thompson had his injuries that he had to deal with the last couple of years Steph Curry was hurt for like the entire season with that hand injury they were a shell of what they once were um, but with that, they you know, got those draft picks that have helped. They have a nice young core to go along with, or a nice young group of guys that, that kind of contributed a little bit. They obviously still, now they're healthy this year. That's why they got the 
their their core was still there. They were healthy. Jordan Poole was huge for them too, and uh, they had a lot of good contributors. But I think they were the first team ever to to go from being the worst team in the NBA to winning the championship like two in, within a two year span. So I think you can see they they were very emotional afterwards, especially Steph Curry, because it's been a while since they've you know they obviously they haven't won in like you know half a decade, which isn't obviously that long. But for this group, you know, and how great they were there in the middle of the 2010s and or t- towards the end of the, that decade, and then having the injuries and kind of having to go through all that adversity and wondering if they're going to get back to get all the way back and then went in and become only the fourth team uh, ever, you know, f- fourth franchise to ever win um, four titles in an eight-year span. They joined a uh, pretty exclusive group. I'm trying to find the, the stat. So, yeah, they joined the Celtics, the Bulls, and the Lakers, the only franchises to win four titles in an eight-year span. Um, this is uh, definitely a dynasty. I think it already was, but it's even more of a dynasty now that they were able to go through some tough times, go through some adversity, get back healthy and kind of regroup and get back on top of the NBA world again. So, I mean, it's really remarkable, obviously. I think they were, I, I wouldn't say that I was surprised. I was a little surprised by some of the reactions. I think you were too, we were talking about a little bit because uh, I, obviously they're really excited. They won, really emotional and just really enjoying the moment and kind of proving the doubters wrong because I'm sure there were a lot of doubters during those down seasons. But at the same time, uh, they kind of almost made it seem like nobody expected them to be here. And I think a lot of people, I think they had like the fourth best odds coming into the season, like 10 to one. So those are pretty good odds uh, behind some other teams that obviously didn't win it. Uh, but they had the same group of guys back again. They had some younger players that contributed um, and they stayed healthy relatively all year long once Clay Thompson came back. And so they had that championship DNA. So I, they, they almost felt like they were using motivation that maybe wasn't necessarily appropriate, but hey, they got to find motivation somewhere. And they felt like they had to prove the doubters wrong and they did. And so hats off to them. Hats off to Steph Curry, one of the best players of all time. I think we always talk about how he's the best shooter of all time but I think he has to be you know considered to be amongst the greatest players of all time especially this generation he's got four championships now along with Klay Thompson and Draymond Green that whole trio um, is, is in rarefied era in terms of trios to win four titles together but Steph Curry specifically you know four titles and you know winning Bill Russell NBA Finals MVP for the first time in his career he averaged 31 points five assists and six rebounds in this NBA Finals against you know the number one defense in the league I mean what he has done in his career and then you know to be you know, in that company now and have a chance to continue to further his resume. I mean, he's one of the best players to ever do it. And he's such a humble player. He's such a good guy to root for. I don't think you can find anybody to say a bad thing about Steph Curry. So uh, cool for him to be able to be in that moment and, and win finals MVP and do such a great job. And just really, you know, great performance by the Golden State Warriors, uh, get back on top of the NBA mountain once again. Yeah, I mean, you pretty much covered it front to back. It's been a really remarkable run for the Warriors, and I think this one certainly meant more for them uh, than the previous one just because they had, you know, fallen so far, uh, you know, having the worst record in the league a couple of years ago and then having to fight back. Uh, you know, for a while there, they were in the final seemingly every single year, and we just kind of got used to that, and so did they. And then they kind of had to fall back down to earth, you know, and with all the injuries they had and the and the, and the issues that they had to go through. But then they were able to kind of retool and get back healthy again, and, and this year they, you know, able to be so great all year long ended up being the three seed and you know had to go on the road uh you know down you know i think uh you know obviously in the western conference finals when it came down to it because they had to play memphis but they got the job done and then you know ultimately they found a way to get or excuse me they were playing the mavericks so actually i I lost my train of thought there but they were the three seed so it's like they were like the they weren't the the best team in there even even in their conference but they ended up being fortunate i guess that the suns and the and the grizzlies lost ahead of them uh and then they ended up facing the mavericks who went in the western conference finals where they actually had home court advantage which certainly helped them a little bit to get to this point but then in this uh nba finals just to find a way to make it happen once again and yeah and talk about their defense throughout the course of the series you know especially in this game 
game as well, holding the Celtics until under 90, until under 100 points. And, you know, we saw just a great defensive performance from them in this game. As, you know, Draymond Green had two steals and two blocks. Andrew Wiggins had four steals and three blocks. You know, Klay Thompson had two steals. Steph Curry had two steals and a block. And so just a lot of great defensive performances across the board from their starters, from their main guys. And, you know, I know we were watching the game and watching the broadcast afterwards, too, and they were all talking about, and we all know Stephen Curry has been such a great offensive player in his career and one of the best and is, you know, the best shooter of all time. Now, like you said, one of the best players of all time as well. But they were talking about how, how his defense has really come along in the past few years. He's really taken it on himself to be better defensively. And he was really good in that final game, not only, you know, offensively, like we already touched on, but also defensively. So you can't say enough about him and just the entire team. But certainly after this game, people certainly feel like Steph Curry has definitely cemented himself as one of the best players of all time. Now that he finally has that finals MVP to go along with those four championships and it's just been a, a remarkable run for Golden State and we have to give them credit so definitely congratulations to the Warriors and as we you know look forward I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon necessarily I mean we've, we I heard some guys talking about that already and I certainly agree because you know they have some talented players who are some young guys they got in recent drafts from not being so good over the past couple of years who you know are still have time to come around and be helpful and these guys you know they're getting older obviously Curry and Thompson and Green but they've still played well so far this season and now they have guys like Jordan Poole and then of course Andrew Wiggins is really good for them this year and there's some other guys like Jonathan Kaminga potentially and Moses Moody and then even uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the James um, Wiseman yeah, James Wiseman, who they drafted a couple of years ago, and he has, has struggled with injuries in his career. But those three guys right there were three pretty high draft picks for them. or you know, And so those are guys that can come around, too, in the coming years. And so there's still a lot of talent on that team. And I know that they've won four the last eight years, but they certainly still have a, have a potential to be really good going forward. And we just have to get used to that once again. Yeah, they're already the favorites uh, to win next year. I saw a very passionate video from Stephen A. Smith, who already said he's picking them to win next year. And kind of many of the reasons you just mentioned, all the great players they have and all that young talent that they still have. Uh, kind of, you know, have an opportunity to develop more and, and contribute even more if they can, you know, certainly find space for them. So it is a scary group moving forward in terms of what they can potentially do. Obviously, it's already a dynasty, and that's, you know, in, in the eyes of, you know, everybody should consider it to be a dynasty. There's no way you can't look at it that way. And now they have a chance to continue to bolster that even more and see if they can put themselves in Bulls territory, you know, in terms of the championships in a certain span of years, which is still, you know, a couple of championships away from doing what Michael Jordan and the Bulls did in the 90s, but still the idea of winning all those championships in a specific amount of time and a short time span. And you know, Steve Kerr, you know, part of that Bulls dynasty, you want to give him a lot of credit too. He's one of the best you know, coaches in NBA history. And we have to consider, we have to say that. I know everyone was, uh, not, we don't have to. I'm saying like, you know, watching the post game stuff, you know, they were giving a lot of credit to him. Mark Jackson gave a lot of credit to Steve Kerr and, Obviously, it's a great team, but he's done a great job with this team for ever since he took over as the head coach there in Golden State. He's won four championships with them now. He won five as a player, so he's got nine rings. So he's just had so much success in the NBA, and he's a great head coach for them. And he deserves credit as well, as well as Bob Myers, right, their general manager. They wanted to give him credit post-game there in that you know trophy ceremony, which was good to see because obviously he's the architect of this team. He's done a great job as well. And so it's just a really class-act organization. They moved you know buildings you know from Oracle Arena over there to the Chase Center during that kind of, you know, you know, low spot in their franchise there for a couple of years where they were, you know, down in the dumps with the injuries and kind of, yeah, that was, that's how, that transition probably wasn't as clean as they wanted to. They were during that transition, they were losing a lot of games, but now that place is rocking and they got to win some games there and, and uh, obviously NBA finals and do some great things. So it's just a, it's a great organization. It's a great franchise. Uh, that's not going to go anywhere like you said anytime soon. And so uh, again, congratulations to the Golden State Warriors on claiming the Larry O'Brien trophy yet again. 
Yeah, and then just one last thing for me as we kind of like just look at the final thoughts on the NBA 75th season. I wanted to like talk about Boston briefly too. You know, it's unfortunate for them that they came up short. Uh, you know, they had a terrific season for the most part. I'm not sure if they, I'm sure they were a team that was kind of expected to be a contender this year, but they finally took that next step. You know, they've been a contender for the past couple of years, but they haven't been able to get the job done. I think they've had troubles in the postseason against teams like the Bucks. you know, who obviously won the championship last year, but the Celtics finally got over the hump this year. They were able to get to the NBA finals once again. Uh, for the first time since 2010, but came up short as Jason Tatum really struggled in the court throughout the course of the NBA Finals, and we would have loved to see him play better. He's certainly one of the better players in the NBA, and him and Jalen Brown are a great tandem and a great duo. And unfortunately, I think Jason Tatum just had trouble in this series. That Warriors defense gave him a lot of gave him a lot of fits throughout the course of the series, and he wasn't able to play that well, especially in this final game where they got knocked out only six for 18 from the field in this game. Just and that just kind of sums up how he performed in the series. He only had like maybe one or two good games, and you know it just wasn't. He just wasn't able to be good enough. And in this last game, it's a shame that Al Horford played so well and so did Jalen Brown. And then, you know, they still weren't able to get the job done. And I think a lot of that falls on Jason Tatum, who just certainly is a great player, but didn't have his best series. And, uh, you know, I think he'll learn from it, certainly him and Jalen Brown and some other guys they have there. They're not a really young team, but they still have some young talent there. And I think they'll certainly learn from it. And they're a team that I think can continue to, you know, compete going forward. But at the same time, you have to wonder, this may have been a missed opportunity for them because there are some really good teams in the East. And, you know, you wonder if the Celtics are going to be a team that can get back here. I look at the Warriors and think they certainly team to get back here in the next few years, if not again next year. But the Celtics, it's going to be a little more difficult for them. So uh, it's a missed opportunity, but they still had a great season and we'll see what happens going forward. And certainly it was a terrific season for the NBA. They really had a, a great, uh, they did a great job of recognizing their 75th season and celebrating it throughout the course of the year. I remember the All-Star game was so much fun when they recognized the uh, the NBA All-75 team and all those great players that were able to be there and even those that weren't able to be there. But it really was a great season for the most part and it was kind of fitting, I guess that it was capped off with the Warriors winning the championship for the fourth time in the last eight seasons and, you know, certainly cementing this dynasty that they have made here uh, in the last, you know, 10 years or so. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you bring a lot of good points, especially at the Celtics. We don't. I'm glad you brought them up because, of course, they you know they were up two one in this series and lost three games in a row, and that was it. Nothing else to do, and they weren't able to you know defend home court again. This you know kind of what I thought was going to happen in the NBA Finals. They, teams were going to be able to find a way to win on the road, and uh, the you know Celtics won Game One on the road, and the Warriors had to go back and win Game Four and Game Six on the road, and they clinched. They actually clinched the title. They're, they've won four championships right now in the last eight years, right? And they've clinched three of those on the road, which is also something we haven't seen very often. So. So, I mean, it's a tough team, and uh, the Celtics gave them a good fight, but they just didn't have enough in the tank to get it done, and they're going up against a really experienced team, which certainly you would think they would learn from. But it is a, a tough Eastern Conference. The West has some some star power as well, but there's, I mean, free agency is going to be pretty crazy probably like it always is, and we'll see what kind of trades are made, and especially, you know, moving forward with some of the roster turnover. But the Warriors, we expect to be right back there again, a chance to do what they did this year, do it again next year. and. And so that'd be really cool. And yeah, you know, Steph Curry, one more thing I was to say, obviously four titles now ties LeBron James, right? So now there's that maybe debate creeps in, which I'm not going to get into all that because I don't really do uh, debates between all time greats. I just respect what we've seen in this league over 75 years. And I don't like to get into all that, but that's certainly something that now that they're tied in titles and you can make the case for, uh, you know, that to some extent if you want to, but certainly they have the same amount of rings now and they're both generational talents and have been two of the best players of this generation. So there's certainly some room for argument there, I think, but, 
you know, speaking of the Lakers, you know, that was a team that I picked to win the NBA finals before the season. I, and I needed to do more homework before I start making picks next year. Of course, we're not going to be doing the podcast anymore, but um, next, I'm not going to make some lousy picks just based on odds, what everyone's saying, because I said Lakers over Nets, I think, and that wasn't even close to happening. And the Lakers do make the playoffs. And now who knows what's going to happen with those two franchises with the offseason moving forward. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see what, what takes place moving forward. But it was a great 75, 75th season of the NBA, like you said. With, that was the one thing I thought about the most probably was the All-Star festivities because that was really cool how they did that. And that was a really special, um, you know, weekend. Uh, and so it was really cool to be able to watch that and celebrate the history of this game. There was a lot that went into that. So, And I think it was a great 75th season of the NBA for the most part. And, it, and like you said, it is kind of fitting for the latest dynasty and uh, a team that certainly cemented their legacy amongst the first 75 years of the NBA to get their fourth title in the last eight years. And so as we look ahead of the offseason a little bit and, and you know, just talking about the NBA draft, which is happening tomorrow night. By this time this episode comes out, it will be you know tonight, Thursday night, June 20, uh, June 23rd. Um, it's going to be you know fun to watch for me because I'm a Rockets fan, obviously, and that's kind of all I've had to look forward to a lot couple of years while we've been the worst in the NBA for the last two seasons based on record it's more for me I was looking forward to the lottery and the draft and now this is our time to be this is my time to be excited about what we have going on here so um, of course we talked about the draft order you know last time when we talked about the NBA draft lottery we're just going to run through it real quick and not going to talk about it for too long but you know, the, the number one overall pick, again, has the, uh, belongs to the Orlando Magic, uh, and we expect them. And then the number two overall pick uh, belongs to the Oklahoma City Thunder, and the number three overall pick belongs to my Houston Rockets. So that big, that, that number, those, those first three picks, we're expecting uh, kind of the big three of this draft. You know, what, I'm not really sure what the order is going to be, but the odds, you know, what, from what I've heard, the odds are saying that, you know, it's likely going to be Jabari Smith and then Chet Holmgren and then Paolo Bancaro, one, two, three. And that's what I'm hoping for because uh, I hope the Rockets get Paolo Van Caro. I think he's the most exciting prospect for me and where he kind of fits in and some of the things I've seen, the videos I've watched, some of the analysis from experts. Um, certainly all three of those guys are talented, and uh, but Van Caro is the likely pick number three. I hope we get him, so I'm looking forward to tomorrow night, but those are the big three we'll likely see. Uh, one, two, three, and it's kind of been the expectation coming into this, and those players were all great in college and all did some you know great things uh, you know throughout the season, and having watched more college basketball this past year, I think this will be a little more exciting than it probably normally is for, for both of us. Yeah, I think so, too. As we move through the rest of the first round draft order, which, you know, there's only two rounds in the NBA draft. So if we wanted to, we could, you know, go through the entire draft order. But we're not going to do that. We're just going to do the first round. So the fourth overall pick is the Sacramento Kings. The fifth overall pick is the Detroit Pistons. The sixth overall pick is the Indiana Pacers. Seventh overall pick is the Portland Trailblazers. The eighth overall pick is the New Orleans Pelicans from the Los Angeles Lakers. The ninth overall pick belongs to my San Antonio Spurs, and I'm excited about that to see who we get. And once again, as we mentioned after the draft lottery, we talked about those first 14 uh, picks that had already been uh, locked in. But this is the Spurs' highest draft pick since we took Tim Duncan back in 1997 with the first overall pick. And so we're kind of picking in, you know, in uh, unfamiliar territory over the past, you know, hand, you know, past two to three decades. I mean, it's been a very long time, so they picked this high, and so it's going to be exciting for me to see, you know, who we're able to get. You know, ideally, we're going to get some, a, ta- a player with immense talent and, you know, more talented player than we've been able to get in recent years because we've never been able to pick this high, and so it's going to be fun for me. Uh, the 10th overall pick is uh, belongs to the Washington Wizards. The 11th overall pick, the New York Knicks. The 12th overall pick, the Oklahoma City Thunder from the L.A. Clippers. The 13th overall pick, the Charlotte Hornets. The 14th overall pick, the Cleveland Cavaliers. The 15th overall pick, once again, the Charlotte Hornets, this one from New Orleans, uh, the New Orleans Pelicans, of course. And then the 16th overall pick, uh, the Atlanta Hawks. 
Yeah, and then as for the 17th overall pick, it belongs to my Houston Rockets from the Brooklyn Nets. I believe this is the first of all those draft pick trades and swaps that with that James Harden trade uh, last January. Uh, the 18th overall pick belongs to the Chicago Bulls. The number 19 overall pick belongs to Minnesota Timberwolves. The 20th overall pick belongs to your San Antonio Spurs from the Toronto Raptors. Uh, the 21st overall pick belongs to Denver Nuggets. 22nd overall pick belongs to Memphis Grizzlies from the Utah Jazz. The number 23 overall pick belongs to the Philadelphia 76ers. The number 24 overall pick belongs to the Milwaukee Bucks. The number 25 overall pick, again, belongs to your San Antonio Spurs from the Boston Celtics. So, again, like you said, you have, I don't know if you mentioned it, but you guys have three, you know, first-round draft picks, which I know we talked about off-air. You're really excited about for good reason, a chance to kind of, you know, for sure add some real talent to that uh, franchise. The number 26 overall pick it belongs to the Dallas Mavericks, but they're picking uh, for my Houston Rockets. Those draft rights will go to my Rockets because just a couple of days ago, or maybe it was last week, I can't remember. I think it was, I think it was a couple of days ago. I, you know, sometime in the last week, since the last time we recorded, at least uh, the Rockets traded Christian Wood and uh, to the Dallas Mavericks for some players that aren't really notable. I don't know. I didn't bring up the trade. It wasn't that, you know, big of a deal in terms of the return that we got. But the biggest thing about this draft or this trade in my mind well, at least obviously the Mavericks getting Christian Woods huge for them, what they're going to try to do this offseason, getting better. But from the Rockets' perspective, just getting this first-round draft pick, I think, was the biggest thing for us. So uh, this pick will be drafted by the Mavericks, but the draft rights go to us. Kind of weird how it works, but that's our th- that, that means we have three first-round picks now as well, which I'm excited about because, again, we're still rebuilding, and we have a chance to continue to further that rebuild in a big way moving forward. Uh, the number 27 overall pick belongs to Miami Heat. The number 28 overall pick belongs to the Golden State Warriors. Of course, the NBA champion Golden State Warriors not going to be picking high this year, which I'm sure they're excited about and have no problem with that. The number 29 overall pick belongs to Memphis Grizzlies and the number 30 overall pick belongs to the Oklahoma City Thunder from the Phoenix Suns. So the Thunder, um, as well as uh, your Spurs and my Rockets, have uh, three first-round draft picks as well. And that's a team that's, of course, been just littered with draft picks in terms of how they've been trying to rebuild their organization and their franchise moving forward, and they have a chance to do that uh, as well here in the 2022 NBA draft happening tomorrow night at the, Barclay, uh, at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York. So that should be exciting. I think it'll be like 20 um, NBA draft prospects there and uh, the way they do that is I, th- I think I read an article like really quick article that was saying like the guys who get invited are the ones who are most likely going to be taking the first round so they don't have to sit there for too long so uh, always cool to see those guys you know celebrate with their families and get drafted and uh, it'll be it'll be fun to watch tomorrow night and see how it all shakes out and who knows what kind of trades happen throughout we're not NBA draft experts but we know these players a little bit more um, and so we'll see how it plays out tomorrow night it should be entertaining and then NBA free agency starts next Thursday at like five o'clock I believe so the offseason uh, is pretty much right here already and uh, should be plenty of roster turnover moving forward that should make things interesting before summer league action happens later on. Yeah, it certainly will be exciting to see what happens tomorrow night. And like you said, your Rockets and my Spurs both have three uh, first-round draft picks tomorrow, which makes it even more exciting for us because we're going to be able to add some talent to our teams and hopefully accelerate our rebuilds and, and get our two franchises back on a, on a winning track. Of course, the Spurs have been better than your Rockets over the past couple of years. They've been in the play-in tournament the past two years, but unfortunately have lost in the play-in tournament in the first game both years. And I think both years have been the 10 seed, so we weren't really that close to, to getting into the playoffs. We had to win a, a few different games to get there. So it's been you know, kind of a you know, the Spurs obviously we were great for so long. We've regressed as of late in the past handful of seasons, but you know we've been able to add talent with good draft picks uh, since then, and hopefully we can continue to do that in this draft. And like you said, we we did watch more college basketball this year, and so you know especially down the stretch and into the, into March Madness, and so we are familiar with uh, a lot of players. I think, and I would say that I probably am good more familiar with the guys coming off the board this year than maybe I ever have been before, and that'll be exciting for me. I think uh, just to you know see some guys that I watched uh, here in the 
here earlier this season in college basketball. Maybe you see where they're going to get to go play professional basketball. So it's going to be fun to see what happens tomorrow night. And I know that uh, you and I will be excited because of our teams having those multiple draft picks in the first round. Yeah, last year the Rockets had four first-round draft picks, and I think we hit on a number of them. You know, of course, Jalen Green came on late down the stretch. He was number two overall pick last year, and then Alperon Shingun did some good things for us, and now that trade, you know, trading Christian Wood opens up the door for him for sure to get plenty of playing time at the five. And then, you know, Josh Christopher had some moments as well, and so uh, I'll be excited to see what we can do this offseason here moving forward. And, uh, yeah, and, and we're not going to obviously do any more than that for NBA draft preview because we're not huge basketball. Like, we're not, like, we know basketball, but we don't really know it down into the details and stuff. So I'm not really sure exactly what the fits are, or what these rosters, what these teams are going to be looking for in terms of building their rosters and exactly where they seat these guys when they draft and what the fit's going to be. But we might be able to bring some recap. We might be able to bring more recap to it next week than we initially anticipated just because we're familiar with some of the names and we might be some, we can make some predictions or at least kind of try to forecast what we think uh, the players might be able to do with the teams that draft them. So it'll be cool to see. And we'll come back next week and talk about that for sure. And that'll be like the last thing we do in terms of NBA uh, draft or NBA conversation. Maybe we'll talk about free agency, though. I guess I shouldn't rule out free agency having some conversation on the podcast as we get closer to 100 episodes and finishing up this season five but certainly the content shouldn't be too much more than we were already kind of done over the last couple of months just off-season content now it's a little bit different but there's certainly some interesting things to look forward to so that covers our NBA conversation for this episode. We'll go on, move on now to MLB news and notes. The only thing we'll talk about here, I know All-Star Game voting, we had updates yesterday for where that's sitting right now. I don't think we need to talk about that right now because phase one voting doesn't end until like next Thursday, I believe, uh, early afternoon. And then phase two is probably like a week or so after that or maybe two weeks after that. And so, I mean, we might talk about next week, but we don't even have to do that, honestly. And so, but mainly we're just focusing on MLB news and notes considering that the All-Star Game is still just under a month away. So uh, we'll go back to Tuesday, June 14th last week that's when we recorded uh, episode 13 so we almost had some history later that night Thank, you know I won't say thankfully it didn't happen because we're still talking about it so it was disappointing but um, it is what it is Miles Michaelis was oh so close to his first career no hitter for the St. Louis Cardinals uh, he came up short by one out yeah he lost it with two outs in the ninth inning on a uh, double by Cal Mitchell a pinch hit double by Cal Mitchell just over the outstretched glove of a diving Harrison Bader and I know they're talking about on MLB tonight so he couldn't handpick a better defender to hit the ball to and you know Harrison Bader is a great center fielder but just couldn't make the play and so Miles Michaelis came so close to no hitting the Pirates but came up just one out short and uh, he joined you know, uh, you know, at least on that list. I mean, there's a, a lot of people I think have lost no hitters with 2009. Not a lot, but probably more than this. But on on quick pitch, they just showed a list of like the the last five occurrences now. It actually hadn't happened since 2018. We had it happen in 2015 with Carlos Carrasco, 2016 with Matt Moore, 2017 with Matthew Boyd, and then 2018 with Sean Newcomb. So it happened four years in a row. Hasn't happened for a couple of years until last Tuesday with Miles Michaelis. So tough stuff there. So close. Yeah, definitely really heartbreaking stuff for Michaelis. And, you know, for me, I have Michaelis on my fantasy team. And so I was really kind of sad, too, because, I mean, obviously you guys wouldn't know this unless you're, you know, I'm, we unless we have listeners who are in our fantasy baseball league. But I've had the worst luck in our fantasy baseball league with having no hitters thrown against me. And then I've had the most no hitters thrown against me out of anybody in the league over the past, you know, five years they've been doing it. And, like, I had three thrown against me just last year. And then I've never had a no hitter, you know. So I know there's like a number of teams who have actually had a guy throw a no hitter for them, including you, James. Paxton like a long time ago so you've had it hasn't it's been a long time for you and you've only had one it's not like everybody in the league has had like multiple I'm not 
the only one I don't think who hasn't had one, but it's like, it's kind of, it's unfortunate that I've had a bunch of the Thunderstone against me and haven't had one yet. And I thought I was finally going to get one right there. Uh, and it was just one out away from finally getting my first no hitter as a fantasy baseball manager. And then miles Michaelis, of course, was one out away from getting a no hitter, which is obviously uh, for him a lot more important than me, but it would have been the first no hitter for the Cardinals in 21 years and their first no hitter at home in like 39 years. And so for a franchise that's been really good for a long time, it's certainly one of the more respected and storied franchises in major league baseball. They've actually not had a no hitter in a very long time. And especially not have, and, and definitely has not had a no hitter in front of the home fans in St. Louis in a long time either. And so it's unfortunate for everybody that that thing got broken up down the stretch there, but you have to tip your cap to Cal Mitchell because it was a great pitch and he just barreled it up really well and, and got it past one of the best center footers in the league. And so tough stuff there for Michaelis, but ultimately a great start for him still. He's having a terrific season and it was a, a great win for the Cardinals that night in a sweep of a doubleheader. Yeah, speaking of the doubleheader, uh, in that first game of the doubleheader, Yadier Molina made history. He recorded his 14,865th put out of his career, which is the most in MLB history for a catcher and uh, I think any position, obviously, I would think. So, uh, obviously, Yadier Molina, future Hall of Famer. I wasn't, it's not a surprise. I didn't really know that was coming up, right? But we saw it on a quick pitch and felt like we would mention it. So, that's pretty cool. Um, as for Wednesday, June 15th, we have to start with my Astros, uh, who did something that's never been done before in MLB history. So, that's the old cliche, right? You go to the ballpark and never know what you're going to see when you go to the ballpark you might see something that's never happened before and uh, it's such a cliche but it happens all the time it feels like and at least this time it certainly did um, as the Astros threw two immaculate innings in the same game and oddly enough it came against the same hitters for the Rangers uh, Luis Garcia threw an immaculate inning in the second inning which was really cool I was actually keeping up with it uh, when it happened so I knew it happened and then later in the game in the seventh inning Phil Maton threw an immaculate inning um, and so now I heard about that and afterwards I was like no way this is unbelievable and you know uh, Todd Callis and Jeff Lum did a great job on the Astros broadcast too. They were going crazy about it because it's never happened before in MLB history uh, that there's been two immaculate innings in the same game. Uh, I think it was, I think I saw there's never been and it's never happened in the same calendar day, much less the same team and against the same three batters. So really remarkable stuff. I mean, you can't really say much more about it. It was just really cool to see. It was incredible to see that happen. And like you said, just kind of the stat was so crazy uh, just because, like you said, we had never had two immaculate innings on the same day and then have them on the same day. And, the, and, but then, and so we did have them on the same day, but not only that, we had them in the same game. And then you go a step further with against the same three hitters both times. It's just like, really, it's hard to wrap your head around that. And you certainly feel like something like that is never going to happen again, uh, more than likely, because it's just that was just so rare and so wild that that happened in the way that it did. But definitely wild stuff. And like you said, the adage uh, was true true and that you know something happened that day that we never seen before and so that was really wild and certainly a noteworthy thing to talk about yeah, I certainly always remember that. Martin Maldonado behind the dish to, to uh, take part in that as well. I feel like people always forget about that with no hitters and different things. Like, it's not just the pitcher, the catcher doing a good job as well. So, cool for the, all three of those guys to be involved in that. Um, and also in that same game, Jordan Alvarez hit his 150th career extra base hit. And I was in his 290th career game. And uh, he became only, or, you know, the last left handed hitter to ever do that, to reach 150 extra base hits in a 290 or fewer games, was only Ted Williams way back in 1940. And he did it in 255 games. So, we all know how good Jordan Alvarez as at least we should at this point in his young career and uh, joined very exclusive company there. So I wanted to throw that one out there. I saw that on Twitter from Jason Stark at Jason ST on Twitter. Uh, also, Elias Sports did a good job finding that one. Uh, also, we had a lot of notes on Wednesday, so we might as well keep going down the list here. But Craig Council uh, actually became the all-time winningest manager in Milwaukee Brewers history with his 564th career win. He passed Phil Gardner on that list. So Craig Council's been there for a handful of years now. He's done a great job ever since he's been there. Um, he won a couple World Series as a player, one with my Marlins and then also with the Diamondbacks, and now still looking for the title with the Brewers, but he's done a great job. Of course, he got them on the doorstep, you know, back in uh, 2018, I believe is what it was. 
Now, when they lost in Game 7 at the NLCS to the Dodgers, and then, of course, uh, but even then still, you know, he's gotten the playoffs a number of times and he's done a great job with them, and they're still right in the mix this year. So cool stuff for Craig Council there with the Brewers. Anytime you become the all-time leader in franchise history of something, especially wins as a manager, it's definitely a notable stat. So congrats to him. We saw Manny Machado join a pretty elite club. He became uh, the 17th player to reach 1,500 hits and 250 home runs before the age of 30. He got his 1,500th uh, career hit uh, last Wednesday against the Cubs. A first inning RBI single, and uh, you know became in the last 30 seasons only the sixth player to to join that company before turning to 30 years old. All with Ken Griffey Jr., Alex Rodriguez, Andrew Jones, Albert Pujols, and Miguel Cabrera. So Manny Machado, when you look at his career so far, guy that posts every day has been very productive throughout his entire career, and is about to turn 30 years old. But uh, reaching those two milestones puts him on a track that he still has a chance to reach 3,000 hits and, two, and 500 career home runs one of these days. Obviously, that'd be a long way down the road still, but he's certainly on track right now to have a chance to do that and getting those milestones is, is really cool getting 1500 career hits now he has 1502 because he got two more later in the game he also has 262 home runs in his career so again he's on track and congrats to Manny on that milestone yeah it's a huge accomplishment for Manny Machado who is certainly you know one of the best players in baseball and I think sometimes people kind of uh, don't don't give him the credit he deserves but certainly he is in that category as one of the best players in, in MLB and certainly has been so productive and so terrific throughout his throughout the course of his career so far you know, he came up with the Orioles very young and you know, just you know was able, was able to have a, an everyday role for Baltimore for a long time and did amazing things for them before eventually getting traded to the Dodgers and then eventually signing that big contract with the Padres and he's done great things for them in his tenure with the team but like you said not even 30 years old yet and to have 1500 plus hits and 250 plus home runs is a huge accomplishment puts him in that exclusive group that you mentioned of guys who are hall of famers or you know could be hall of famers uh one of these days or you know should be uh and so certainly it's an it's an exclusive group and a great accomplishment for machado Absolutely. Uh, moving on now, Tyler Anderson also came uh, just short of a no-hitter on Wednesday night. He was two outs away from a no-no for the Dodgers. He's had a great season for them uh, so far this season. He had his uh, no-hitter broken up with uh, one out in the ninth inning on a triple by Shohei Otani. Um, and so that we had back-to-back nights where uh, you know a pitcher carried a no-hitter into the ninth inning and just came up short. So uh, really terrific stuff, though, nonetheless. Yeah, definitely a pretty wild, uh, you know, sequence that we almost had two no-hitters last week, and then both of them came up short in the ninth inning. You know, I don't think it's, you know, certainly when you have a guy throwing a no-hitter through eight innings, you certainly feel like the chances he can get it done are, are pretty good, you know, because he's been that good. And then to have two guys had their no-hitters broken up in the ninth inning, you know, just uh, one out away from Michaelis and then two outs away from for Anderson, it's pretty pretty amazing stuff. But that just goes to show that, you know, every single out so precious, and you know, and, and you just. You have to keep on going all the way to the end, and they just were so close but couldn't get there, and uh, it is what it is. But it was certainly interesting that that happened. Yeah, definitely. I know. I don't know when the last time it's ever happened if we've had back-to-back days with no hitters, um, but certainly we were close to having a couple, but we actually didn't have any. But still worth noting, those guys came up just short, and Tyler Anderson did last Wednesday. Uh, Adley Rushman hit his first career home run last Wednesday in Toronto against the Blue Jays. Of course, number one prospect in baseball, and probably still is. I don't think he's graduated off the list just yet, but obviously he came up a couple weeks ago when we talked about that, and uh, uh, good for him uh, to get his first career home run. Certainly a guy who I think has done a nice job with that pitching staff and certainly bringing some energy and uh, it's a stingy Baltimore Orioles team that's been better than people expected them to be. 
Yeah, it was great to see him have that first uh, big fly in MLB. Certainly a guy who I think has had a great impact for Baltimore so far. You know, I think he's he's dealt with uh, reasonable struggles so far at the plate. You know, hasn't been terrific at the plate necessarily, but I think he's coming along. And I think it's just natural for a guy to get up there, not to make adjustments because it's just this is the big leagues now. And so it's different than than uh, the minor leagues. And so I think he's adjusting to it, though. And, you know, finally got that first home run out of the way, which is good. I think we'll continue to see the, the offensive pedigree come around. I think we'll continue to get better in that regard. But certainly he's been a terrific defender and he's done a terrific job catching for that pitching staff and has been just a true professional so far I think since coming up here and it was great to see him have that first home run yeah I couldn't agree with you more last note from last Wednesday Cody Clemens actually made a pitching debut now Cody Clemens the son of Roger Clemens of course seven times Cy Young award winner one of the best to ever do it Cody Clemens his son made his debut a couple of uh, weeks ago not a pitcher he's an infielder I believe by trade maybe he's I think might play a little outfield as well but he's definitely not a pitcher but he did make his pitching debut in a game where the Tigers were just throwing position players out there late uh, their position players actually did better than their actual starters did in that blowout loss but I guess it's worth noting just the fact that Cody Clemens pitched in the game which is kind of funny to think about uh, so I wanted to throw that one out there as we move over to Thursday June 16th now we only have one note from Thursday and just wanted to you know, recognize Joe Musgrove once again because he nabbed another uh, quality start uh, for the Padres on the road against the Cubs pitched I think seven innings of two run ball nine strikeouts and so that's 12 straight quality starts or 12 straight you know quality starts but I think also starts of six or more innings and two runs or fewer allowed uh, to start the season 12 consecutive which I think ties him with Ubaldo Jimenez right that list that stat sheet or that leaderboard that we had talked about last week on the episode for the most consecutive starts to a season uh, with that stat liner, you know, being in that company and being able to do what he did. Again, he pitches tomorrow, I believe, against the Phillies. So we'll see if he can, you know, join, uh, you know, be the only one atop that leaderboard and keep a great start to the season going. Uh, as we go over on Friday, June 17th, the Cubs got an improbable win over the Braves. Coming into this game, the Braves had won 14 straight games. We had talked about their winning streak last week, and they kept it going up until Friday when they met the Cubs, and the Cubs were on a 10-game losing streak. So it's only the second time in the last 30 seasons that a team that was on a 10-game losing streak or more uh, defeated a team that was on a 10-game winning streak or more, um, and they also won the game one nothing, which is very strange as well. Yeah, it was a crazy game there, certainly. I remember kind of keeping up with it because it was on a Friday and we, you know, the Cubs always play at home. When they play at home on Friday, they always play early in the day. It's always a day game. And so the game was on early in the day and I was keeping up with it a little bit while we're watching the Aggies face uh, Oklahoma uh, there in Omaha. And, you know, I remember thinking, you know, seeing the game was low scoring like that and, you know, seeing the Cubs were winning for a long time and they eventually got the win. And I remember telling you, like, you know, the Cubs were on a 10-game losing streak. The Braves had this huge 14-game winning streak. I remember thinking that this has to be some sort of, like, you know, it has to be some sort of like record or it has to be something that we're going to see on quick pitch later tonight. That's probably never happened. That's probably happened very little in MLB history. And certainly it was because, you know, just for a team like the Braves who were so red hot playing so well, especially offensively, I mean, they tore it up in Washington against the Nationals uh, last week. And then to go into Chicago where the Cubs had been, you know, battered and bruised by the Padres who were just scoring at, r- at will against the Cubs in that, uh, in that series. And then to go in there and the Braves get shut out one to nothing. It was just kind of a strange uh, situation there. And that's just kind of, the, that's, baseball right you know and again that show where things happen that you don't expect to happen and I think it was the first time ever that it was a one to nothing shutout for a team that had a 10 plus game losing streak to beat a team with a 10 plus game winning streak and so just a really wacky stat there but something that definitely sums up baseball and the unpredictable things happen seemingly all the time yeah it was only the second time in the last 30 years the Phillies did it back in 99 against my Astros so uh, very strange stuff to see and it was kind of funny they scored that one run uh, kind of I think it was a sacrifice bun a sacrifice flyer they kind of played small ball to get that one run so it's almost like they they learn 
learn from their loss to the Yankees that we had mentioned last week by just finding a way to scratch across one run. That was all they ended up needing in a rare one nothing win. And then also we saw the Yankees and the Mets uh, both hit grand slams on the same night last Friday. They married each other, mirrored each other uh, last Friday because both of the grand slams, uh, Anthony Rizzo hit one from the Yankees, Pete Alonso hit, hit one for the Mets. Both gave them 10 runs after they hit those grand slams. And it was only the sixth time uh, in, in, in the MLB history that they've uh, the Yankees and the Mets hit grand slams on the same day. And of course, they've been kind of mirroring each other all season long. You know, some both like the best teams in their leagues and just winning a lot and playing really good baseball. And uh, the Yankees, of course, are on a little bit of a different planet. They've been better than everybody, but still pretty interesting to note that it's only six times it's ever happened. And uh, Anthony Rizzo and Pete Alonso both doing that last Friday uh, for the teams in the Big Apple. Saturday, June 18th, we want to mention Riley Green made his debut for the Detroit Tigers. And, uh, you know, he was supposed to, I think, join the big league club right off the bat this year. But because of an injury, he had his uh, MLB debut delayed until last week, uh, last Saturday, able to get up to the big leagues, which is cool for him. And he uh, you know, became uh, the first player since Cedric Mullins back in t- August 10th, 2018, to reach base four times uh, in his debut. So, and, and, if you, and it's the first, you know, and so I was going to say, you know, the first time since Cedric Mullins back in 2018, Cedric Mullins has turned into a pretty good player for the Orioles. So I think if Riley Green ends up being as as good as uh, Mullins has been so far for the Orioles and being a nice young piece for their franchise, I think the Tigers would love to see that. And so he walked a couple of times, also picked up a couple of hits. So he got his first career hit out of the way early. So uh, good for Riley Green there with the Tigers. They needed some kind of spark, and they were able to win a couple of games in a row after he joined the big league club. Sunday, June 19th, we saw Jack Sawinski have a three-homer game, and uh, very notable stuff from Jack Sawinski with the Pirates. He's been hitting, I think he's double-digit homers now this season. I feel like he's had a nice, uh, you know, I think he's done some good things for the Pirates this season, certainly made his name known out there in Pittsburgh, and uh, you know, he, he became the first rookie to ever have three home runs in a game, with one of those being a walk-off home run. It was, this was a crazy game, because I think, I think his first home run tied the game. His second home run gave the, the Pirates a one-run lead, and then they ended up losing the lead in the ninth, and it was a tie game, and then he had the walk-off home run. So it was like all three of his home runs were either game tying or go ahead and then a game winning home run, which was also pretty interesting to know. But the only, you know, he's only uh, the last five players with a three home run game, including, you know, walk off home run. It hasn't happened that much. You know, it's only happened like five times now since 2016. So uh, pretty cool stuff there from Jack Sawinski. Yeah, Sawinski has definitely been really terrific so far for the Byers for the most part. You know, he's definitely provided a spark for them and has been an exciting player and has had some big home runs uh, since he's been called up this year for the Buccos. And certainly that was a, a huge game for him, having three home runs with one of them being a walk-off home run and being the first rookie to ever do that is definitely a great accomplishment and really cool for him. And, you know, the Pirates uh, have a number of young players who have come up here and played pretty well for them so far. And uh, we're going to talk about one of them here in just a moment. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Brendan Rodgers actually did the same thing last month against my Marlins, but obviously not a rookie anymore. Eddie Rosario back in 2018, Manny Machado in 2017 back with the Orioles, and then Chris Davis back with the A's in 2016. So uh, definitely some pretty cool company to be in there. Um, Gerard Encarnacion had a historic debut for my Marlins. I love seeing uh, what Gerard Encarnacion did last Sunday. Uh, and he had a grand slam for his first career hit, which obviously that hasn't happened very often. Uh, let's pull up the stat real quick for that. So yeah, grand slam. Uh, hold on, let me find. Okay, here we go. Yeah, so Grand Slams in your MLB debut in the modern era. So since 1900, it's only happened six times ever. Bobby Bonds back in 1968. Jeremy Hermito with the Florida Marlins back in 2005. Kevin Kuzminoff for the Cleveland Indians at the time, 2006. Daniel Nava with the Red Sox, 2010. And then Brandon Crawford, actually, with the Giants back in 2011. Uh, so, it's, you know, only players never hit grand slams in their MLB debut as their first career hit, I believe, or maybe it's just in general, but Jarrah Encarnacion for my Marlins did it on Sunday. So the first time it's happened in 11 years. It was his first career hit. It was a grand slam. It gave the Marlins a 
four to one lead in a game we ended up winning and Sandy Alcantara was on the mound in that one uh, which is important for us to win those games when he starts but not only did he you know do all that the grand slam but he also stole a base and had an outfield assist or a defensive assist just in general and became uh, the first player to do that at least since 1901 in MLB debut so Gerard owns a guy who I know I've heard his name before in our minor league system glad to see him up here I think he got optioned back down AAA to just get more playing time because he was only up here for injuries but excited to see him one day hopefully uh, carve out more of a role and so certainly made an impact there in his MLB debut and again, Sandy Alcantara was on the mound in that game. Uh, and Sandy Alcantara went eight innings, I believe, and allowed uh, just one run, I believe, in that game. So he actually, that was the eighth straight start of seven innings or more, two runs or less. That's the longest such single season streak since Felix Hernandez did it. Uh, 16 straight starts back in 2014 so pretty remarkable there and he's also thrown 63 and two-thirds innings pitches last eight starts and the last pitcher to throw 63 or more innings in an eight outing span was uh, Chris Sell back in 2016 and Clayton Kershaw also did it that year so uh, we have you know we're seeing Sandy Alcantara do we haven't seen in a little while you know baseball nowadays guys don't go as deep anymore but Sandy Alcantara for my Marlins an absolute workhorse and has been just doing an absolute you know, absolutely outstanding job of last eight starts even more than that he's been just terrific all season long so some of those stats you know good stuff from Sarah Langs, that's Langs on Sports on Twitter, as well as Christina Danicola, who was the Marlins beat writer. So cool stuff there uh, against the Mets for my Marlins doing some great things. We saw Mike Trout just go bonkers against the Mariners in Seattle over the weekend. It was a five-game series. They had a doubleheader on uh, Saturday. Um, he hit five home runs in that five-game series, and uh, he, also, he also made history in terms of how impactful all of those home runs were. Mike Trout became the first player in MLB history to hit four game-winning home runs in a single series. Uh, game-winning home runs classified as home runs that put his team ahead uh, to stay. And so, you know, Mike Trout, I think it's pretty well advertised that he kills the Mariners. He has like 52 home runs against him in his career, which is almost, I think, maybe the most ever. And obviously, he's not even close to being done with his career. So Mike Trout, for the longest time, has tormented Seattle. He's tormented them in their own ballpark. He did it again over the weekend at T-Mobile Park. And it was just really uh, pretty historic stuff there, uh, again, from Mike Trout. Yeah, Mike Trout certainly documented success against the Mariners in his career. Like you said, 52 home runs is time for the most ever, and they played the Mariners again this weekend here at home, and so you figure that he will definitely be able to break that uh, record for the most home runs hit by an opposing player against the Mariners. And, you know, I think he has like 33 home runs too uh, in Seattle, which, you know, used to be Safeco Field and now is T-Mobile Park, and I'm pretty sure that's like uh, tied with Albert Pujols right now for the most among active players at a particular ballpark, if I'm not mistaken, because I'm pretty sure Albert Pujols has like 33 home runs in his career at Minute Maid Park against the Astros. And now we have Mike Trout with 33 home runs in Seattle against the Mariners. And so he definitely has always tormented the Mariners and given them fits. And, you know, it just, it was wild this weekend too. Just seemingly every time I went to go, you know, just, just to check on some scores and see what was happening, you know, you would see that, that the Angels had scored some runs and you go over there and it turns out Mike Trout had homered yet again. And to have four game winning home runs and five home runs overall in the series, it was just remarkable for Trout uh, as he continues to give the Mariners all sorts of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, last thing here from Sunday, of course, was Father's Day. We saw Buddy Kennedy, or excuse me, Buddy Kennedy, who's a uh, rookie uh, over there for the Diamondbacks. He had a grand slam. Um, wasn't his first career hit, but he still it was a huge grand slam in the game. Uh, and they said now on quick pitch, they showed that his father was actually in attendance. So you know that was a great Father's Day gift, right? And uh, cool stuff to see for him. We saw uh, Jack Swinski's dad was also in attendance on Father's Day for his three homer game, which just mentioned a little bit earlier. So cool stuff on Father's Day to have some you know those, those players do some great things with their dads in the stand. Certainly uh, worth noting and just kind of want to recognize that obviously Sunday was Father's Day. It was a great day, I think, uh, around MLB. And so uh, as we move on to this week, Monday, June 20th, we start with the players of the week like we typically do. 
We'll go over to, uh, yeah, here we go. I got the screenshot right here of the Players of the Week. So it was uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. of the Toronto Blue Jays, who was uh, American League Player of the Week, presented by Chevrolet. He had three home runs and seven RBIs. Uh, pretty good week for Vladdy, for sure. Hitting the ball hard. Seems like he's turned around in the form a little bit more here as the, as the weather heats up. You know, he had a little bit of a tough May, but, you know, and maybe even April a little bit as well. But uh, ultimately, he's, he's kind of, you know, been hitting the ball hard, like I said, and he got recognized for having a pretty darn good week for the Blue Jays. And then Paul Goldschmidt of the St. Louis Cardinals won National League Player of the Week, presented by Chevrolet. He had four home runs and 11 RBIs. And I mean, Paul Goldschmidt's been raking ever since May, really. Uh, he's had a great season so far. Certainly one of the leaders. When you talk about NL MVP candidates at this point in the season, Paul Goldschmidt's been absolutely amazing for the St. Louis Cardinals this season. So those guys awarded players of the week. Cool for them. We saw Garrett Cole continue his dominance at the Trop there in Tampa. Uh, he pitched uh, almost a no hitter. Actually, he lost it in the eighth inning, uh, and he had. But that's not really the point of the no. I just wanted to say that real fast. But yeah, Garrett Cole, uh, 12 strikeouts in this game, uh, put himself all alone in terms of most consecutive starts with 10 plus strikeouts by a visiting pitcher at one stadium. That's his sixth consecutive start at Tropicana Field with 10 or more strikeouts, passing Shane Bieber uh, with the Guardians, who's done it five straight times against uh, the Tigers at Comerica Park, uh, and then. Sandy Koufax uh, at Connie Mack Stadium did it five times as well. That's since the modern era, or in the modern era, so since 1900. So really exclusive company, rarefied air. Of course, Quick Pitch, again, does a great job all these stats we get to bring to the table, and Garrett Cole doesn't strike outs. The Yankees uh, won the game, and uh, good stuff for, for Garrett Cole for sure. Yeah, certainly a really cool, you know, stat there. And, uh, you know, just like you said, the other night he was outstanding once again against the Rays. Uh, and like you say, he was throwing a no-hitter through seven innings and ended up losing it uh, later on. But that did not take away from a phenomenal performance in terms of missing bats, you know, with 10-plus strikeouts once again against the Rays. And to do it six times in a row now at Tropicana Field is really quite something. And it's funny that Shane Bieber is second on that list because I didn't even, you know, I didn't know that he was second on that list or tied for second with uh, Sandy Koufax, but tied for second with five against the Tigers at Comerica Park. You know, I kind of chuckled because it makes perfect sense because I feel like every time Shane Bieber goes against the Tigers, he pretty much shuts them down and, and you know, has, and, you know, obviously racks up a ton of strikeouts against them too. But yeah, Garrett Cole, really amazing stuff for him and, and just uh, utter dominance in terms of strikeouts against the Rays and the Trap. Yeah, really, uh, I think that, that I would feel like that goes back to even when he was the Astros, you know, because, you know, he was always good against them whenever we played against Tampa. And so definitely cool stuff there. We'll see if you keep it going. It's an active streak, so there's a chance to keep it going. They certainly play him a lot, and he's got that big contract, so it can it definitely something we have to keep an eye on and uh, might continue moving forward. Uh, finishing up here with some last few notes, uh, we I put on here, hello, O'Neal Cruz. Yes, the shortstop, the 6'7 shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, called up to not make his MLB debut. He didn't make his MLB debut last year, a couple of games but this is his debut this season a guy who I think some people expected to be here when the season started but maybe because of service time manipulation maybe that's still going on to some extent they kept him down there in the minor leagues up until this point but they finally recalled him uh, to the big leagues a guy who just has immense talent you can just see it on display on this first game I mean he, he made the hardest throw by an MLB infielder all season at almost 97 miles per hour I mean you have to go watch that play on Twitter or IG or you know anywhere on social media I mean it was ridiculous uh, how fast that ball went from his arm to first base it was zooming uh he also had the hardest hit ball by a pirates player all year at almost 113 miles per hour off the bat he drove in four rbi had a bases clearing double he tried to stretch into a triple and for good reason because he's super fast as well he, t he clocked the top three fastest uh run speeds by a pirates player uh, this season uh, in that game all three just over 30 feet per second 
even one of them even one of them was 31.5 feet per second which by i think the statcast metrics is elite speed so and this guy is just immensely talented like i say six seven and hits the ball really hard runs really fast and throws really hard and it's just ridiculous already you're just watching what he he has a chance to be really really special um uh, for the pittsburgh pirates so it's definitely exciting for them uh, i know you wanted you mentioned earlier the young players they have coming up it's uh it's it's, it's interesting stuff in pittsburgh right now it's, it's good for them because i feel like they've been rebuilding for a while and we haven't had a lot of good things to say about them but these young bats have given some excitement there for the pirates and they certainly have and Cruz certainly seems like a physical specimen you know with those uh metrics he just talked about and things that he did in in that first game this season of course he played two games last year so this was not his MLB debut uh but certainly a season debut here in 2022 and he was just phenomenal in that game on Monday against the Cubs and the Pirates routed Chicago and so that was really cool to see for him and for the Pirates and you know also this is kind of an additional thing they also called up uh, a young rookie for them Bly Madris who made his MLB debut on Monday and he's half to a good start as well as he had a home run last night had a pretty good game on Monday evening too and you know unfortunately for him or maybe he doesn't even care but O'Neill Cruz coming up here at the same time as him uh, has kind of overshadowed what Madris has done but he's come up here and been pretty cool uh, has been pretty good for the Pirates who's also been pretty cool for him and the Buccos. Yeah definitely so talking about all the young talent we've talked about on this podcast the Pirates Jack Sawinski now O'Neill Cruz and then Bly Madrid uh, or Bly what did you say his name was Bly Madrid's right? Yeah, kind of an interesting name. That's why I didn't, want to, I didn't want to get it wrong. But yeah, Bly Madrid's doing some great things. Well, I'm glad you recognized him too because that's like the third of kind of the three we've just mentioned. And uh, we'll certainly see how these guys play moving forward. It's uh, The pitching is still not very good. And Pittsburgh is still, I think, probably the disappointing part of that team. But hey, some of these bats can swing it. So we'll see. And then our these players can swing the bats. So we'll see about that. And, and then lastly, Isaac Paredes had a three-homer game yesterday for the Tampa Bay Rays. He's a young guy who was traded to the Rays right before the season started uh, from the Tigers in that Austin Meadows trade. Austin Meadows hasn't even hit a home run all season for the Tigers. It's had a pretty tough stretch, had to deal with some injuries and stuff. He hasn't really been a very impactful player for the Tigers. And Isaac Paredes has hit some home runs uh, since he joined the Rays. Hasn't been like a great player necessarily. Still a young guy, but certainly a guy who has three home runs in the game. There's certainly some talent there. He actually did it in the first five innings, which was even more probably surprising or remarkable or cool to see. And he had a chance to get his fourth home run, I think in the seventh inning or maybe it was the eighth and was hit by a pitch, which I think was disappointing for, for everybody because we were hoping that maybe he was going to hit that fourth career home run, which would have been even more remarkable but still a three homer game still cool to see and uh, still an impressive young player to some extent we'll see how he continues to develop moving forward yeah, it certainly feels interesting that uh, he's been so good uh, for them because I think coming into the season, he only had like two career home runs, and now he has eight so far this season with three of them coming last night. So just a really uh, cool thing for, for the Rays that they've been able to find him, and, and he's been pretty solid for them. Hasn't And he hasn't played a lot this year necessarily, but they've been they've had some injuries here as of late, which has really been difficult for them. They lost a number of key players right now, like they're without Wander Franco, and then Manuel Margot got hurt recently, and so did Kevin Kiermeyer, and so they're having to get guys in there who can play, and Isak Prada, certainly last night came in there and, and played really well having three home runs like you said and then you know becoming only the seventh player in their franchise history to have a three homer to have a three home run game and then like you said almost had four home runs or had a chance to have four home runs but unfortunately got hit by a pitch which was disappointing uh, because we have not seen a a, four, uh, a player hit four homers in a game since JD Martinez back in 2017 and so we would have loved to see that it didn't happen but ultimately a great night for Isak Predes and the Rays who got the win last night against the Yankees whenever Nestor Cortez was starting for, for New York and so to get a win against the Yankees with him on the mound was good. And two of those home runs actually came against Nestor Cortez. And so, yeah, just a, a really terrific evening for Paredes and the Rays. Yeah, it's a good point because they had been struggling against the Yankees. Of course, everyone's struggling against the Yankees. They've been so good this season. But the Rays getting the win last night, that was good for them. And we'll see if that sparks some momentum for them moving forward. Because their offense has been pretty sluggish this year. Good to see Paredes mash some homers for them. And that'll be an impactful bat as they try to hopefully, for their sake, get healthier as we move forward. But that's all we have for MLB News and Notes.
Yeah, so that does it for the MLB news and notes. And now we'll move on to our golf conversation where we are now able to recap the 122nd U.S. Open that happened over the weekend at the Country Club in Brookline, Massachusetts. And we obviously previewed the U.S. Open last week and we're really excited to see how it was going to unfold and transpire, uh, what was going to ultimately come to fruition on a very difficult golf course. And at the end of the day and at the end of the weekend on Sunday afternoon on Father's Day, we saw Matt Fitzpatrick win his first have his first career win on the PGA Tour and it comes at the US Open so his first win is a major championship win as Matt Fitzpatrick the Englishman end up finishing at six under and you know had a phenomenal weekend obviously because he was the one who came out on top but had three rounds of 68 along with a round of 70 and so he shot par or better every single day and that's you know something really notable because this golf course was played really tough all weekend long uh, and, and at the end of the day it was just really the best golfer out there obviously he made that huge shot uh, on the 18th hole as well you know down the stretch it was just such a great golf tournament you know first of all before I dive into the round or anything it was just a really just really competitive uh, weekend the entire time I mean everybody was I mean you kind of nailed it last was talking about how we were expecting kind of the scores to be more in the in the single digits and we certainly didn't think that guys were going to get into the minus 10 or greater area and you nailed it with that because it was pretty low scoring all weekend long and it was really competitive throughout the course of the weekend I mean everybody was really tightly compacted and you know it was uh, every, and also we saw a number of guys kind of you know kind of go up and down and like lose it a couple of different times I mean John Rahm is a guy who was uh, in contention uh, and during on Saturday. He ends up kind of having a, a, a double bogey on the final hole, and then he kind of fell out of it and really was not in contention on the stretch uh, on Sunday. Colin Morikawa was a guy who had the who was tied for the lead uh, at the end of the at the end of the second round, and then on Saturday he really struggled and and ended up falling out of contention. And he came back on Sunday, but he fell behind so much that he could not come back. So we saw a number of guys kind of go up and down the leaderboard. So it was really tough golf course for guys to kind of stay consistent, and that's what we saw from Matt Fitzpatrick, which is really consistent in golf all weekend long as I mentioned with 368s and then that 70 on the, in the second round and on that final hole he, had, he didn't have a very good drive off the tee you know hooked that one a little bit into a, into a fairway bunker and then you know it was really kind of a it was going to be a tough second shot for him and all he had to do was make par uh, for the most part to be able to win as long as Will Zalatoris did not make birdie uh, and so it was really competitive between Fitzpatrick and Zalatoris who were the who, who were the two guys that were the leaders at the uh, they were in the final pairing after the 54 after 54 holes and so, you know, it was actually great to see that final pairing live up to the hype. And they played really well on, on uh, Sunday once again. And it was on that final hole where Fitzpatrick landed in the fairway bunker and had to make a big shot. And he made just a phenomenal shot. Uh, really just, I mean, certainly that was the shot of his life right there. I mean, that was just a really tough shot for him. And he said afterwards that the fairway bunker shot has not been very good for him this year. He's really struggled with that one, but he he nailed it, landed it on the green, ended up making the making it par as he was able to two-putt pretty easily there. And then Will Zalatoris, he made a great shot too. Gave himself a chance for a birdie and came up just short once again. Ended up having to settle for par and ended up finishing at 5 under and and, you know finishing tied for a second and so he ends up being a runner-up at a major championship once again but ultimately just a really great weekend of golf at the U.S. Open a really competitive weekend between so many great players at a really historic and difficult golf course and at the end it ends up being Matt Fitzpatrick who gets his first career win on the PGA Tour and it's at the U.S. Open. 
Yeah, you pretty much nailed it there for the intro. Just really fun to watch over the weekend. Really tough golf course, as you mentioned. With uh, and it got a little bit more difficult with some of the weather, with the wind a little bit. I think on Saturday, which I think we saw affect some some guys. Um, but you know, credit to Matt Fitzpatrick, like you said, shooting par or better. Only he and Will Zalatoris uh, shot par or better, I believe, every single round or yeah, every single round on the tournament. And you know, and that makes sense because they were both in the final pairing. And you know, Will Zalatoris came inches short, uh, or not short technically, but you know, inches away from making that birdie just barely missed the break on that one it was just a great putt and just just not enough break on it and uh, you just feel for him because it's his third runner-up now in a major tournament over the last uh, two years you know runner-up at the 2021 Masters uh, and then runner-up at the PGA Championship in a playoff right against uh, Justin Thomas and now here a runner-up along with Scotty Scheffler who tied for second as well at 500 par uh, here at the uh, U.S. Open so he's like that close to being three fourths away to the Grand Slam in his young career he's been so good uh, in major tournaments and and uh, a really fun player to watch. He always seems to come in, uh, you know, in these big moments and play really well. And uh, Matt Fitzpatrick was a guy as well who was in contention at the PGA Championship on that final day. He just wasn't able to do enough. And you have to feel like he learned from that. He's he's won uh, elsewhere outside the PGA Tour. Now gets his first career PGA Tour win, like you said. And he comes in a major. And he's a guy who's uh, played well, like I said, this season. And so good for him. Happy to see, you know, happy for him to be able to, to do that um, and raise that trophy afterwards and uh, have that celebration with, his, with some of his, uh, his, excuse me, some of his family that was there. That was cool. Uh, obviously, they're emotional afterwards. And it was a great win for them. He had that great 48 put, uh, 48 foot putt uh, for birdie I can't remember exactly what hole that was but I was on the final day and then you mentioned the fairway bunker shot which was pretty epic and uh, and a heck of a shot to get on the green and have a chance to two putt for for par and he made a lot he had a lot of greens I think he made 17 of the 18 greens actually on Sunday which is even more which is also super impressive and so he definitely didn't flop on the final day when the pressure was on uh, he was able to control himself find a way to shoot a 68 and ultimately win the U.S. Open so really cool stuff from Matt Fitzpatrick and then, uh, again, like I said, Will Zalatoris comes up just short at uh, tied for second at 500, but a great round of golf for Will as well, uh, who shot 67 on Saturday, which was the best round that he had. But he had, again, like you said, or like, like I said, uh, you know, all of his rounds were par or better with a couple of 69s booking the weekend. So just great for him, uh, you know, to build in that position again. And I saw some stuff afterwards, obviously, him saying, like, it hurts, you know, obviously. But, you know, he's uh, – I mean, just keep – they're doing something right, obviously, being in contention and having finished runner-up and just going to keep knocking on the door eventually that you would think they would break through. Uh, he and his caddy are – you know, his, he and his team are eventually going to break through and able to uh, get that major title. And then Scotty Scheffler, as I mentioned, I was my pick to win uh, the U.S. Open, despite some technical difficulties that we had on the podcast last week that actually cut off the rest of my pick there, which we had listened back to. But I, you know, I think if I was able to get the pick in there, I did pick Scotty Scheffler and he came up just short at five under par. Uh, there in a tie for second along with Zell Torres and he had a you know really great Sunday 67 he also had 67 on uh, on Friday and he actually the only round that he shot over par was a 71 on on Saturday and he actually an eagle uh, you know on in that round I think on the eighth uh, hole that par five and uh, he played really well I believe on that front nine for the most part I think he kind of fell off a little bit in the back nine and he got off to a great start on Sunday and kind of fell off a little bit just not able to do enough but still great stuff from Scotty Scheffler who just continues to play at a super high level and I had a you know he actually broke the record for most money accrued uh, in a single season on the PGA Tour. He's made $12.8 million now in 2022. And we still have like seven, you know, regular season tournaments left, uh, 10 overall, right, with the playoffs and all that. Plenty of money to be made back there. So we'll see how much money Scotty Shepard ends up making when it's all said and done this year. But he passed up Jordan Spieth, who did it in 2015, made $12 million. So... 
uh, still doing some pretty cool things, certainly. And uh, he actually you know, became uh, just the uh, fourth player since 2000 to have seven finishes where he's either won or was the runner-up in a tournament. You know, he's obviously won four times this year on the PGA Tour. He's also been a runner-up three times and seven such finishes in that way in one season. Only the fourth player since 2000 to do that, along with Justin's, uh, excuse me, Jordan Spieth uh, back in 2015. You know, makes sense. And then Tiger Woods did it four times, and Phil Mickelson did it two times. And so pretty cool stuff there for Scotty Shuffer being in contention yet again having a chance to win and almost did get his second major of the, his career end of the season. We saw Hideki Matsuyama compete again in a major. He was fourth at three under par and then going to tie for fifth there with Colin Morikawa and Rory McIlroy both tied for fifth at two under par. And those are two guys, obviously, along with Scotty Sheffer, Team Taylor May, guys I root for, and I'm happy to see them well represented in the top five in this major, but unfortunately, no wins. And for Colin Morikawa, he just shot himself out of it on Saturday with a 77. I know the, the wind was a little bit of a factor, and the course didn't play as much into how he plays. I think he was trying to, I think I heard he was trying to play like a little bit of a draw, which isn't really what he does, but, uh, you know, and so that, I think that kind of got away from him a little bit on Saturday. Just it definitely wasn't what he was expecting. He putted it pretty well, actually. I think I was, I think he putted it really well, at least, uh, I, I don't, well, actually, I know Rory McElroy putted it really well. Well, Rory did in this tournament, but still, Colin Morikawa shot 66 on Friday and on Sunday, but that 77 on Saturday kind of knocked him out of contention a little bit. He made a push on Sunday, but ultimately came up short. It was all said and done, but still another top five, another good round of golf at a major for Morikawa, who... You know, he's not going to get a chance to help his Grand Slam anymore because he already won the Open, which is coming up a month from now last year, but still, uh, you know, inching closer to, he's still playing really good in a major again, and Rory's probably the biggest one where it's kind of frustrating for him probably, and uh, and for people that, I mean, it's kind of hard not to root for Rory. He's a really fun player to watch, and he's a really good guy for the game of golf, especially right now with everything that's happening. He's a big, you know, part of the PGA Tour and kind of has that to, that, that weight to, to be on his shoulders. He has to burden that load a little bit, but he was great on Thursday at a 67, then he shot 69 on on Saturday, he was four under uh, heading into the weekend, and then on moving day, got away from him uh, as well. Just kind of like Colin Morikawa, just didn't have a great Saturday. Shot three over, and that kind of hurt him a little bit. And then he shot one under on Sunday. Just felt like he couldn't do enough. It kind of felt like the PGA Championship where he got off to a great start on Thursday, and then just couldn't really do enough uh, the rest of the way to kind of help his opportunities or help his chances to win. And you know, for a guy who's you know 33 years old now and hasn't won a major since 2014, obviously he's still pretty young and still a very talented player. But it's, you're just wondering when is he finally going to put a breakthrough and win another major again. It's just been, you know, frustrating for him to play so well, but not able to find a way to get it done. But still a top five for Rory and another uh, really good performance in a golf tournament for Rory, especially at a major, just not being able to break through, which, uh, you know, obviously I think I read some stuff as well. Kyle Porter uh, with CBS Sports, who I've, you know, mentioned a number of times on this podcast, great golf writer, always love reading his stuff, was kind of comparing McElroy and Zalatoris, how good they played. They both finished in the top 10 at all three majors this year, but neither of them have won any of them. Um, and they're, they're obviously playing, you know, cumulatively under par over that stretch. And have been great, but uh, you know, for Zalatoris, you know, he's still really young, and, and obviously has a lot of career left in front of him to try to finally win a major tournament. And for Rory, it's almost like his career's been split in two. Um, you know, for for the first part of his career, when he won, I think four majors there early on in his career, and and now he hasn't won one in a long time. When he finally does break through, I think he's, I think I read that at least you would think that it's going to be almost feel like his first again because it's been such a long time since he's won one, and even though he's been in contention, so pretty cool comparison there at least. And uh, it was fun to watch so many great players compete. There were a lot of you know other. Guys guys as well that kind of finish in the top 10 that can let you round out 
Yeah, to round out the top 10 here, we have Denny McCarthy, who finished uh, tied for seventh, along with Adam Hadwin and Keegan Bradley. They all shot one under for the weekend. And for Keegan Bradley, it was cool to see him have a great reception there. He's from the Boston area, and it was good to see him have a great uh, weekend of golf there in Brookline and great, get a great reception from the fans there once it was all finished up on Sunday afternoon. And then to round out the top 10, we had two players who finished tied for 10th, and that was Gary Woodland and Joel Damon, who both both finished at even par for the weekend. And so ultimately just a, a wonderful weekend of golf. And we certainly enjoyed it a lot. Uh, a couple of other, uh, and then a couple of other notable names. We had John Rahm who finished tied for 12th at plus one. Like I said, he uh, was doing really well on Saturday before he had a double bogey on the 18th hole that really kind of sunk his ship a little bit. He shot 71 uh, on Saturday because of that. And then on Sunday shot 74. And so you hate to feel that way. And so you hate that this happened, but it feels like maybe that double bogey kind of uh, uh, carried over to Sunday a little bit and so he struggled and fell out of the top 10 and he was a guy who you thought could be in contention uh, down the stretch and unfortunately wasn't so he was not able to repeat as the US Open champion. Xander Shoffley like a, a guy that you had as your top 10 lock who had finished in the top 10 of the previous five US Opens. I think it was five right? Yeah okay so he finished in the, in the top 10 in the previous five US Opens. He finished tied for 14th at plus two and uh, so there you go with that. Uh, other than that I don't really have that much to say other than I had another uh, you know I jinxed Cameron's Smith. I did it again. I picked him to win the U.S. Open and he failed to make the cut this weekend. And so I'm pretty sure I'm three for three now and picking guys to win who don't even make the cut at these major tournaments. And so we'll see who I pick for the Open and and, and ultimately if that guy's able to make the cut or not. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm upset that uh, Cameron Smith was not able to play very well for me this weekend. Uh, as far as um, Sam Burns, who was my top 10 lock, he finished tied for 27th and that really sucks because he was playing really well for the most part uh, through the weekend uh he was you know i think he was yeah one under going into the final day and so he was not that far behind the leaders i mean everybody was right there around you know one under to, to four under in that range kind of going into sunday so he was kind of in that range where he was within striking distance if he could put up a low number on sunday he would have he would have had a chance to win and at least you know make the top 10 but he shot six over on sunday shots and he shot 76 and so he fell down and wasn't able to get the top 10 lock for me and then lastly for me i had billy horschel as a sleeper and you know the the sleeper is kind of funny because they're not going to win more than likely. And he unfortunately did not make the cut. So it is what it is. But ultimately... It was a wonderful weekend of golf, like I already mentioned. I, I think we really enjoyed watching it, and it was good to see a really, you know, tough golf course because I think I like to see that more. I like to see a really challenging golf course, and I like to see, uh, you know, rounds of golf where guys are not going out there and putting up like negative minus 15, minus 20, those types of things. I like to see kind of like a really tough course that challenges the best players in the world. They have to go out there and make shot after shot they really have to hit the fairways and try to have, make a good approach shots and you know to have to deal with the bunkers and the and the tough uh rough that was around the great those types of things it really challenges these players and i want to see the best players in the world challenge to see who's the best of the best and who can overcome the tough conditions and the tough course i uh, like this one here in brookline i uh, like the country club here that gave the players fits all weekend long and so it was fun to watch that and i'm you know just really happy that we got to enjoy it and certainly congratulations to matt fitzpatrick who was able to get the win when it was all said and done.
Yeah, definitely. And I want to clarify real fast. Actually, the article that I read that was kind of comparing Rory McIlroy and Wolves out towards the kind of major disappointment, major championship disappointment that they've kind of experienced in 2020 in terms of competing really well, finishing in the top 10, but not winning was actually Patrick McDonald with CBS Sports. I've been reading more of his articles lately too. Some of the recaps he's done, he's done a nice job with them too. So, but then also the storylines coming away, uh, it was like a 13 minute read. That's what it said. I don't know how long it took me to read it, but that was an article from Kyle Porter. He broke down like nine storylines taking or, or not the nine take away from the U.S. Open that I think I drew from some of that as well. That was a good article too. So just a fun tournament. You know, majors have been so great this year. The Masters was obviously the everything we always expected to be. And then the PGA Championship was tough. We had a playoff. It was cool. The U.S. Open was uh, outstanding this past week and such a great golf course uh, and such a great event. You know, it hasn't been at the country club very often. I feel like it should be there more. It was so good and uh, so competitive and, and so intriguing from start to finish. And then now we have the Open Championship coming up a month from now over there at the old course at St. Andrews. Uh, which is going to be so fascinating to watch and just going to be really exciting uh, to see what happens there. Certainly the last of the four major championships, which we'll be able to preview in, in, a pro, in due time whenever it comes around, which is probably going to be like one of the last things we talk about in this podcast. It's going to be that championship previewing it, recapping it. Might, that might be the final episode, hopefully, when uh, we get to that point. But yeah, Alexander Shoffley also had a poor 75 on Saturday, which kind of pushed him out of contention in terms of at least finishing top 10 like I predicted. So he finished tied for 14th. And then uh, Justin Rose, who I put as my sleeper, ended up finishing a tie for a 37 at 7 over par. Of course, all of your guys uh, struggled uh, and didn't didn't play very well, right? So I did better than you in terms of the predictions and when it was all said and done. But um, you know, it was it was a fun golf course to watch and uh, or a, a fun golf tournament to watch rather. And so I think we kind of broke it down about as well as we could. Last thing I'll say is Joel Damon, who finished tied for tenth, also kind of struggled on Saturday with a seventy four, and he was you know one of the clubhouse leaders. I think he was tied for the thirty six hole lead. At least he was five under the first uh, two rounds. Didn't play as well on the weekend, but still competed pretty well. And so good to see him out there. Uh, you know, obviously there were some names that were kind of surprising early on that kind of filtered out when it was all said and done. But it was a really fun tournament. Like you said, congratulations to Matt Fitzpatrick on uh, becoming the 2020 U.S. Open champion and a really fun golf tournament to watch. And so as we finish up our golf talk uh, with the PGA, with the PGA Tour talk, uh, which is just kind of mentioning the Travelers Championship is now happening this weekend so that's where we go uh this weekend over there in Cromwell Connecticut TPC River Highlands so uh this one one last year was Harris English and I know you mentioned that this was the epic playoff we think from last year with Kramer Hickok that was a really good I think seven hole playoff that which uh, you mentioned before we started recording so we'll see the Travelers Championship lives up to the billing again and see if it's as exciting as last year's was yeah, I'm pretty certain that that was the seven-hole playoff we saw last year between Harris English and Kramer Hickok, where Harris English was ultimately able to get the win uh, at, at the Travelers Championship. And so, you know, hopefully we get another terrific uh, tournament here this weekend. You know, I think there's always like a little bit of a letdown after a major, but there's still going to be great golf played there at, at the at TPC River Highlands. And I know we're looking forward to uh, tuning into it a little bit over the weekend. And, you know, the Travelers Championship, we said that big red umbrella, the Travelers logo in that lake slash pond area. And so that'll be cool too. But ultimately, I think it's going to be fun no matter what. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to keep up with this closely as the U.S. Open. and won't recap it next week nearly as much as we recapped the U.S. Open because obviously we recapped uh, the U.S. Open more uh, because it was a major championship. And so we tried to treat it more like the Masters and the PGA Championship. And I think we did a good job of that, talking about it at more length because it was noteworthy and, uh, you know, certainly reasonable for us to do that. So, yeah, I feel good about what we're able to do there as far as recapping the U.S. Open and just kind of going through it and talking about 
uh, talking about what was a great tournament and kind of our takeaways from it. And now, like you said, we look forward to the Travelers Championship this weekend on the PGA Tour. I think we'll leave it at that. We're not going to talk about the Live Golf Tour, I don't think, uh, unless you wanted to, but I, I feel like we'll just leave it alone. That whole situation is still a little bit kind of fluid right now, and uh, and that's something that we don't really need to touch on right now at this time. I know we talked about it last week a little bit, so I think this week we'll just kind of let that go. Yeah, I wasn't going to talk about it really too much, but I was going to say Dustin Johnson finished tied for 24th uh, here at the U.S. Open, which I think he's probably one of the higher... Uh, he might have been the highest finisher amongst those live golf tour guys that was able to play. You know, Phil Mickelson missed the cut uh, pretty badly, so uh, we didn't expect Phil to do that well anyway. And uh, we saw that Brooks Kepka actually announced that he's going to be joining the live golf tour now as well. And that was kind of the breaking news from this week in terms of how that has played out now moving forward. And uh, still just a lot of... Uh, still a lot of uh, you know you know contention there certainly and uh, but we did hear this morning that the Open Championship said that Live Golf Tour players are going to be able to be eligible to play at the Open Championship so that's cool to see at the end of the day when we get to the Open Championship next month we're going to see all the best golfers in the world compete again which is going to make it even more exciting to finish up our major championship season which has been like I said a blast so far and so I can't wait for that uh, whenever it comes around July 14th to the 17th at St Andrews Links the old course there um, over there across the pond so that's gonna be fun to watch certainly but obviously there's still a lot of great golf up until that point to look forward to and the last thing I'll say on golf is uh, I wanted to shout out Sam Bennett real fast, uh, who uh, was one of the four amateurs to make the cut this weekend at the U.S. Open. He ended up finishing tied for 49th at 10 over. Uh, did not win the amateur championship, um, but did you know compete really well and got to play the weekend, which was cool. And so happy for him, of course. And Aggie, we've mentioned on the podcast before a little bit. And so happy for Sam to uh, obviously qualify for the U.S. Open as an amateur, make the cut as an amateur, and finish, I think, second amongst the amateurs there um, at the U.S. Open. Yeah, that was great to see. And speaking of amateurs, uh, I wanted to point out also that Matt Fitzpatrick became only the second male golfer ever to win the U.S. Amateur and the U.S. Open at the same golf course. And so back in 2013, he won the U.S. Amateur uh, at uh, the Country Club in Brookline and then also obviously just won the U.S. Open there. And so that was pretty cool. He joins Jack Nicholas, who did that at Pebble uh, at Pebble. Uh, Pebble Beach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I couldn't say it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and so that was a, a really cool accomplishment for him and something definitely notable that I, that I had forgotten about. But now that you mentioned amateurs, I wanted to point it out just briefly here. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was really notable, and I don't know how I didn't think of that, but I'm glad you did, certainly. I mean, I remember seeing it, but I guess I didn't make a note of it, and certainly that was one of the more notable storylines, or at least connections that people made, and maybe that's part of the reason why it played so well, potentially as well. I knew the course, of course, everyone kind of knows it a little bit, but I think maybe he had a little bit of a upper, or a little bit of an edge. Of course, I think they've changed a little bit since then. That was back in 2013, but either way, that was a, uh, that was cool for him to be able to join that, you know, very exclusive group and become, you know, just the second now with Jack Nicholas uh, in that regard. So great stuff from golf this weekend, uh, really exciting stuff. And again, uh, plenty of news in the golf world moving forward, but that's all we need to say for now. We'll go ahead and double dupe, and we'll just talk about Aggie baseball's memorable season as it comes to, or we'll talk about Aggie baseball for a moment as their memorable season came to an end today in Omaha. Such a uh, great season for Aggie baseball, better than, you know, they, they did so, it was such a special group of players uh, that did more than anybody ever expected them to when the season began. And then, ultimately ending in Omaha on, on quite the run in the postseason and uh, just so much, uh, you know, so happy for those guys. At least so happy for our university and our program and you know, just so thankful to be able to be a part of that, at least not be a part of it in terms of obviously, I mean, I did get to cover some games uh, for baseball for, with, or cover some baseball games with the bat, but be able to obviously be a fan and watch a lot of the games here down the stretch and, you know, be a, you know, really connected and locked in. It was really fun to watch. And, uh, you know, they became only, 
earlier, you know, they've won two games in Omaha, which had never been done before um, in, in you know, our, our program's history. And, you know, in the first, that was our seventh trip to Omaha. And the first six times we ever went to Omaha, we only won two games total. And the first six appearances we ever had to College World Series, we won two College World Series games this year. And that had never been done before in program history. And we had Nathan Dittmer pitching an absolutely epic game yesterday, seven innings of shutout baseball, which was one of the best performances uh, for an Aggie pitcher ever. You know, first to ever do that in a College World Series game. So that was really cool to see. And, you know, for Jim Schlossnagel in his first year to do what he did with this program, the transfers that we brought in, you think about those, you know, Dylan Rock who had a home run today and the loss to Oklahoma 5-1, to one, but you know, he was so great all season long and Jacob Polish, who was so gutsy today and just battled all the way through and just gave us a bunch of, gave us the rest of the game after Prager left uh, after a short start. So he was just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it was really cool to watch. And, uh, you know, Cole Kaler as well. And then well, there's one person I'm forgetting for whatever reason, but Troy Clodge. Yeah, Troy Clodge, obviously. I don't know. I can't forget Troy Clodge. I, I don't know. I was thinking about the seniors. Some of the guys aren't going to be around anymore. Definitely Troy Clodge, probably the biggest of all four of them just because he was the catcher and the 12th man, you know, he had to, he wore number 12 and that's a special number. And, uh, for sure, obviously, in our, our university and all the tradition that runs so deep, and he was emotional afterwards because it's been such a great season for, for all of those guys. And uh, just getting to this point, getting to Omaha, and you know, going into Jim Schlossnagel really quick, he became just the fourth coach to log multiple College World Series wins at multiple schools, you know, along with uh, Larry Kokel, Aji Girito, and Andy Lopez. So, you know, that's obviously a really exclusive company as well. You know, he came over here from TCU after having so much success with the Horn Frogs, and you know, he talked about it when we got to Omaha, waking up in a cold sweat uh, early in the morning over the summer last year trying to figure out how he was going to get this team on track because we weren't a good team last year at all but the transfer portal helped a bunch uh, and it's just a great group of guys that gelled together perfectly with Pringles and everything else and you know, getting to the final four was just really uh, historic for this program. And uh, there's, I think the future is definitely bright for Aggie baseball. And we're, we're so proud of the group. Wish it didn't end, but it is what it is and still overachieved and definitely looking forward to what the future holds. Such a magical run for the Aggies this year. We talked about that a number of times here on the podcast. We've been able to keep up with it and have been able to reference it time and time again in the Double Dupe segment. You know, we kept, we kept talking about how we were excited to see them in the SEC tournament, how we we're excited to see them in the NCAA tournament. And then, you know, the more they won, the more we continued to have an opportunity to talk about them on the podcast. And ultimately, they ended up getting to Omaha, which was something nobody expected. I mean, this whole season has just been so incredible because, like you said, we came into the season with little expectations and not really knowing what to expect with Jim Schlock. Nagel taking over in his first, you know, taking over as the new manager of the baseball team and then having all those transfers and not knowing how it's all going to come together and the expectations were so little coming into the season because the projections were so low on what this team could do and then they win the SEC West, a team, a division that had four teams in Omaha this year and then to, you know, uh, have a good run in the SEC tournament to come up short there but then ha- to go into the NCAA and to go into the NCAA tournament and, you know, go 3-0 and before we get to Omaha, uh, you know, go undefeated before we got to Omaha and then you'll come up short it's uh, it's unfortunate, but at the same time, we I think certainly everybody in that in that clubhouse is going to hold their heads up high because of what they were able to do this year. And this was certainly the the, the best year that the Aggie baseball team has ever had. And when you think about what you said, how this was the first time that they've ever won multiple games at the College World Series, and that they've you know won as many games at the College World Series this year than they had in the in the entire program history. And so it's just really hard to put into words and to describe what this team was able to accomplish this year. You just can't say enough good things about them. And there's 
really few superlatives that can sum up uh, what this team was able to do. But we certainly enjoyed every moment of it and are so thankful for what we're able to enjoy as fans and, as, of course, as, uh, as you know, they're, uh, as alumni now of Texas A&M. Obviously, it means more now that we're, that's our alma mater. And so we, we, we've always cheered as fans. But now it's like I kind of feel like it's more than that. We're fans, but it's also our alma mater. And so we're always cheering for them anyways. But it's just such it was such a treat this year uh, to watch them time and time again and what they were able to do to represent this university in the right way and to, to do as, as well as they were able to do throughout the entire season. It was just so awesome. And you talked about all the transfers. You know, it's just so great for them to, to come over here and, and do such a great job for this team. And I'm sure it's a, it was difficult for all of them to kind of maybe leave where they were comfortable to transfer here. And I know you said about Troy Clon just getting emotional afterwards. He said it was a leap of faith to come over here. But him and Jacob Polish and all the other transfers, they did such a great, a great job together, meshing with the guys that were already here. And then you had all these new coaches come together. And it was just really incredible that everybody was able to come together and, and build something truly special here in Aggieland and set the foundation for what we hope is going to be a really bright future going forward for the baseball team. And, you know, they're just kind of at the, at the front. You know, they're, now they've obviously the, have been able to get to the kind of the forefront of this entire athletic program where we're really excited about all the different athletics that we have going forward. And so just really fun stuff. Super excited about the future. It, it sucks that it came to an end today, but we certainly are so thankful for what they were able to do and so proud of what they were able to do this season. And now we're looking forward to the future and what we think is going to be a really bright future now with Schloss and Eagle at the helm. We certainly know that there's so much room for improvement now. And it's amazing that they were, they were able to get this far when the pitching was not always very good and the defense was pretty shabby at times. But ultimately, it was just a great year and we certainly were so thankful for it. And now we look forward to the future, which we hope is going to be very good. And we hope this is only the start of what can be a really good era for Aggie baseball. Yeah, you mentioned the coaching staff. We'll kind of finish up before we move on. But, you know, Michael Early, the hitting coach, Nate Yeske, the pitching coach, those guys deserve a lot of credit, too. I know a lot of credit's gone to Jim Schloss now because he's the head guy. And he came in here and kind of put this group together, and it all worked out really well, pushed all the right buttons to get us into the Final Four of and get into the College World Series semifinals. But those assistant coaches did an outstanding job. The offense was so good all year long, top to bottom, you know, so patient at the plate and just as simple as swinging at strikes and taking balls, you know, and, and doing a great job. And, of course, Nate Yeske did a great job, I think, with the pitchers. You know, those guys weren't always that talented at times and you know we didn't have the deepest you know pitching staff in the world but some of the guys that we did have you know pitched really well at times and you can't get to this point if you don't pitch somewhat well and I think you know I think the pitching staff always took a backseat to the hitting but those guys were certainly impactful in the defense it certainly was bad but that's going to get better for sure but for the first year to to not play perfect and get all the way to the semifinals is pretty exciting and pretty cool and just really a special season and glad to witness it and be a part of it as a fan and, uh, and, you know, beating Texas on Sunday was awesome as well. You know, it was the first time we'd ever played our arch rival in Omaha and winning, uh, you know, 10-2 to and knocking them out of the postseason and sending them packing and keeping our hopes alive was just really awesome. My father was able to watch that. That was just a great game. Uh, really scored like six of the eight innings, you know, because we went we'd have to play the ninth because we were up by, you know, eight runs. And so we had to worry about that. So we scored in 75% of the innings, scored the most runs ever scored in a College World Series game. That was our first College World Series win since 1993. So that was a huge win on Sunday for the program for who we be but also for our own selves and things that we were able to do in that game and then beating Notre Dame a couple days ago to get in the semifinals was a great win behind Nathan Detmer and that timely or just taking you know opportunistic opportun- you know effort from the offense getting some runs across so just a really special season and uh, I think we pretty much said what we need to say about it I know we've talked about it a couple of times over the last couple of weeks as you've said they kept winning we kept getting opportunities to talk about what they've done and what they're doing what they could do moving forward and then now we finally get a chance to 
Well, not finally because we didn't want it to end, but now we had an opportunity to recap it today. And we wish we weren't recapping. We wish we were looking ahead to a, a potential, you know, a, a winner go home tomorrow to get into the semi and get into the final series. But uh, Oklahoma is uh, going to be in the College World Series finals over the weekend, and who they'll be playing is still up for grabs. Arkansas and Ole Miss are playing right now. Arkansas has to win to to take it to an, a winner go home game, elimination game tomorrow. Uh, they're up two to one right now. So if Arkansas wins, we'll see it be Arkansas or Ole Miss in that final round in that final series or Ole Miss if they can win you know either tonight come back and win or tomorrow they'll be in the finals against Oklahoma either way it should be a fun college world series final series or finals I wish we were in it but it is what it is and uh you know, still super proud of this group and uh, looking forward to st- still somewhat looking forward to seeing what happens the rest of the way in the College World Series. I mean, it's almost over. We've kept up with it so much because our Aggies were in it. Well, well, I'm sure we'll watch it down the stretch here as it finishes up over the weekend and maybe into Monday if a game three is necessary. But either way, we'll be able to recap it next week and put a bow on all that. Yeah, I think we'll certainly keep up with it because we've already kept up with it throughout the course of uh, its duration so far. And uh, like you said, it's uh, and like you said with Oklahoma, I mean, they just. I mean, we have to tip our cap to them. They they are playing really good baseball right now. Their pitching is terrific. Their offense has been scoring really well, too. And so I think the Aggies certainly, like I said, have every right to hold their heads high because they played very well. And Oklahoma is just a team right now that looks like they could win the whole thing because they're playing at a really high level. And, you know, they've just been so terrific. Uh, you know, they were not a national seed, and they had to fight to get to this point, and they're playing really good baseball. And so it just it is what it is. And, you know, as far as Oklahoma, they're, they're hoping, you know, we know their softball team won the Women's College World Series earlier this month and if their baseball team their men's team here is able to win the uh, the men's college world series they'll be the first program ever to win the women's college world series and the men's college world series in the same season and so that'd be quite the accomplishment for oklahoma if they're able to pull that off but like you said we'll see what happens they are going to be in the finals against either arkansas or Ole miss and as you mentioned we'll see who comes out on uh, who who ends up coming out from the other side of the bracket as you said arkansas if they win tonight Arkansas will face Ole Miss again tomorrow, and whoever wins will play Oklahoma. If Ole Miss wins tonight, they'll play Oklahoma, and that will start on Friday, regardless of what happens. And so that's all we have to say for the Cultural World Series. And then lastly here, the Stanley Cup Finals still rolling along right now. I believe Game 4 is happening as we speak. And by the time you all listen to this tomorrow, uh, the Avs will either be up three games to one, or the Lightning will have tied the series at two games apiece. And then we'll see how it finishes up down the stretch. We haven't watched that much of it. I mean, we didn't expect to. We talked about it last week, but but we were very honest uh, and candid that we didn't know how much we were going to watch, but at the same time, we have kept up with it, and we, we do know what's happening, and uh, we'll see how it finishes up down the stretch. Yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, the, the Avalanche won the first game in a, in a shootout, or in a, not a shootout, but in a overtime, so they were able to score within, like, pretty early in that overtime period also to win the game, take a 1-0 series lead, and they won, like, 7 nothing in game two, which was just ridiculous. We know how good the, I mean, we know to some extent how good the Avalanche offense is, and they scored seven goals and won 7 nothing, and then the Lightning won last night, I think, 6-2, to two, and I think it was, like, you know, I think it might have been the first team to, you know, win after allowing seven goals in a Stanley Cup, so, I mean, they were kind of not backed against the wall necessarily because obviously they weren't trying to stave off elimination but you know you can't go down 3-0 uh, or you don't you wouldn't want to obviously that would make it even more difficult to come back so now they're able to get back to a 2-1 series deficit and we'll see if they can get up even up tonight and if they can't then the lightning uh, will be in a big hole and the avalanche will be in a great position to go back home and try to seal the deal but we'll keep up with a little bit more and there's a chance that that might be over next week I'm not really sure how the schedule goes the rest of the way but if it's over we cap it if it's not we won't and we'll just mention it but either way uh, that, that's not really taking up too much of our time on this podcast which is cool but we wanted to which is fine well it was cool to mention it again just kind of keep up to date with that and as we get closer to kind of finishing up the nhl as well and 
just kind of running out of topics, but we, I think we feel pretty confident that we can uh, still have a number of episodes. As we try to finish up our season five here on the DDSP, but that's all we have for this episode. And, uh, you know, I think we covered everything for the most part and I'll let you, uh, finish up what you're going to say before you let me finish up. Yeah, definitely. I think this episode was uh, good for the most part, a little bit lengthy, uh, but ultimately I think it's because we had a number of topics. Once again, like you said last week, anytime we have a number of topics that we had to talk about, it can get a little bit long-winded, but ultimately that's going to do it for us here on this episode of the Double Dupe Sports Podcast. So once again, just like always, thank you all for listening to this episode. If you listened to the entire thing, we certainly appreciate you for that. But even if you listen to parts of it, we certainly appreciate you for that as well, because anytime you spent listening to us here uh, on this episode, you know, anytime you spent listening to the episode, uh, we do not take for granted. And so we do thank you for any listening that you gave us here on this episode. Also, please subscribe, rate, and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever else listen to our podcast. We certainly appreciate it when you all do that for us. And please follow us on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at Doopy underscore Austin or on Instagram at AU underscore Doopy 10. And as we know, Tyler will plug his handles here very soon as well. And uh, again, if you guys do not follow us yet on our social media handles on Twitter and Instagram, please do that because that is where any podcast related information will be related to you all. And so... Please follow us there if you do not already. And as I finish up, just like always, I'm certainly looking forward to all of the great things we have in sports going forward because though the NBA season has now officially concluded, we do have the NBA draft tomorrow night, which for you guys is tonight if you're listening to the episode on the day it came out. Uh, but I'm looking forward to the NBA draft tomorrow evening and uh, looking forward to seeing who the Spurs take with our three first-round draft picks. And then, you know, looking forward to MLB continuing to roll along here uh, through the late part of June. We have uh, the Travelers Championship this weekend in golf, and so we'll see what happens there on the PGA Tour, and then of course, even though the Aggies are not are no longer alive in Omaha, we still have uh, some good college World Series action happening throughout the rest of this week, and then the finals happening uh, from you know Saturday, Sunday, or, uh, or Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I believe it is. Or no, it is it is it is Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and so yeah. <laughs> And so, yeah, we do have great action from Omaha still, even though the Aggies are no longer part of that. And I know we'll be looking forward to seeing how that goes as well. And so ultimately, though one season has concluded with the NBA, there is still stuff happening in the NBA offseason now that that is officially underway. And so there's still plenty of sports action happening right now around the sports world that I'll be looking forward to and hope you guys are too. Uh, and certainly I'm looking forward to seeing how it all unfolds and transpires uh, and looking forward to, to watching all of it. And uh, ultimately, you know, you know, take, having, you know, getting takeaways from it so that I can come over here so that we can come back here next week and talk about some of it here once again on the Double Dupe Sports Podcast. I look forward to speaking with you all again at that time. Yeah, I mean, you pretty much know they're on the head. There's still a lot to look forward to. Happy that the NBA season's finally over because it just feels like it's so long. I mean, I, I like the NBA, but I don't, like, love it necessarily, and I feel like it lasts longer than it needs to, you know, all back to late October when it gets going, and it just takes forever, and the playoffs are, like, two months long. We sat here forever. It took so long just to crown a champion. It feels like they drag it on sometimes, but, hey, it's over now. The Warriors are champions, and now we go right into the NBA draft, uh, you know, Thursday on June 23rd, and signing for us, and the NBA offseason, like I said earlier, just goes right away with, free agency and we'll just see how the roster construction works moving forward and that, and that league doesn't really stop either i feel like no leagues really stop but that one especially it seems like but hey it's all good we it's all good we still have some good content to talk about which is another one with that and the mlb news and notes segment next week maybe some all-star stuff but i don't i don't think so i doubt that but i'm not going to rule it out completely but certainly still a lot to look forward to with mlb news and notes 
depending on what kind of things. I mean, you, we had so many notes today, you never know what's going to happen. And so that'll be fun. And, uh, you know, obviously golf, we'll see, you know, if there's anything more going forward with the live golf tour and all that stuff. It's just, like I said, so much uh, animosity there and who knows how that goes moving forward. And if anybody else leaves, certainly it's bringing a lot of headlines and, uh, well, you know, you know, it's going to be not going anywhere. We know that, we know that much. It's, it's changing the game of golf forever at the moment. And so that's just something we'll have to look forward to or not look forward to, but just kind of monitor moving forward. And I mean, we might, talk about it more in the podcast one of these days but nothing more to say at this point obviously and we'll just kind of take that week by week and uh yeah you know I just want to say last thing, you know, we're obviously already finished talking about everything, but, you know, Aggie baseball is kind of like the last connection for us, you know, with this sports season, right? Because obviously we were students, uh, you know, in the spring and then, you know, now Aggie baseball is over. And so now, you know, it's kind of like the last connection from when we were students, now graduates and so it's kind of like it for us now. And so it kind of puts a book in on the whole Aggie athletic season pretty much. And so now looking forward to 2022, 2023 and all the great things that we looked forward to with Texas a athletics, obviously, uh, you know, good group of, uh, you know, teams from football and then basketball obviously what they did last year and baseball as well you know obviously all their sports as well so much to look forward to it's a great uh time to be an aggie moving forward with everything that's happening around the program so cool stuff there and we should have a good episode next week plenty to talk about as always and uh, we hope you guys join us next week right here on uh, the double dupe sports podcast